Hello, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Thomas Stanley. Yes. Lord of... Everything. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go into it. Lord of the dance. (laughs) (laughs) His uh, titles change as we go along. Right. So when we first get him, he's not really anything. He's got no title. Mm. So we will start with just Thomas Stanley. Thomas Stanley. Old Tom. I'm hoping we're going to get through this in one, but the number of pages, it's going to be two episodes. It's going to be two episodes. Ah. I did try to knock it down, but yeah, it was just too interesting. (laughs) Well, that's good because we've got William coming up next and the research for that reminded me of researching John de la Pole because there are sort of blobs in his life, which we know about. Right. And then nothing in between. And And I don't cover much about William. That's good. I started this before you even pulled William, so I was quite surprised that we're getting one after another, so that might give us even a better rounded view. Mm. But if I added in anything really about William into this, we'd be here forever. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we're not going to do that. Good. But before we start, we have very many new Tudor Roses, our patrons, to thank. It is awesome. So we've got Kaylee Priest, Barbara Barth, Fairy Rose, Amanda Shepard, Maple Leaf Aussie, Ethel Lahert, Karen Q, Taylor Davis, Dippy Anna, Miss A. Wright, which I love the pun. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not getting it. Miss a right. All right. Miss a right turn. (laughs) (laughs) And a ninja. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It really helps us get all our materials and keep this podcast going. (laughs) And psychologically, it does us good as well, I think. Yeah, somebody's actually listening. (laughs) Yeah, it's not just financial. It's, my goodness, people not only listen to it, but want to hear more. (laughs) Yeah, we're actually doing okay. (laughs) Lots more, because we've got... Just, we just got four more episodes of Katerina. Yes. So, uh, yes, there's hours and hours over there to plough your way through. Tudoriferous Patreon, you're very welcome. Yeah, the next one is Anne of Brittany going up. Mm. We're in the middle of researching her, and it's going to be quite a ride, too. Excellent. Loads of ups and downs. (laughs) Ooh, we also want to tell everybody about one of our wonderful patrons, Andrew Schneider, has asked us to give a plug for his new CD. It's called Pinnacle Contemporary Chamber Works. Andrew is a composer of two of the pieces. It will be available digitally March 2023. And actual CDs that you can hold in your hand will be available from Andrew himself. We will put a link on our website so you can find out more information and buy a copy. We're super excited and really proud. Congratulations, Andrew. On to Thomas Stanley. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I think you've forgotten how this works. (laughs) I haven't forgotten. I was hoping we could just sort of bypass it. It has been months and months and months and months. So I will do my best, but everybody knows that I have a very short-term memory. (laughs) 
It has. And there were three episodes of him. So I have I have tried to make it pretty easy. <sighs> okay. Quiz. Okay, question one. Explain to me precisely Ferdinand's plan for getting the northern Italian states for his grandson. <laughs> no. Okay, alternative question one. <laughs> what item of facial hair did Ferdinand not have? Eyebrows? No, sorry, a unibrow. Mm. <laughs> I knew what I meant. <laughs> I knew what I meant. Yeah, he had two of them. He didn't have a monibrow or a unibrow. Man, that Northern Italy one would have been really hard to even explain because he's like, it was almost like shuffleboard. If I move this person, this person, and this person over to here, I will mm -hmm. eventually get what I'm looking for. Yeah. It was so confusing even listening to it, let alone trying to explain. <laughs> well, don't, don't worry. There are no questions about episode three. <laughs> <laughs> what did his father give Ferdinand when he was 16 as a thank you for not rebelling? Oh, it was one of the kingdoms. I don't remember which one. Mm. No, not right. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump over to Naples. Sicily. Sicily and... Athens. Sardinia. Yeah. Sardinia. But I'll give you that, Sicily, yeah. Number three. What game was Ferdinand said to be good at from a young age? Women. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking it's chess, but I'm... Chess, yep, yeah, that's it. Yeah. But he also played that other one with the weird dots and squares. Did he? What, go? No, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of Isabella's episode. Sorry, they oh, used right. to play it together and he beat her often. It's that one, it's not squares, it's like um, concentric squares. So small square, big square, bigger square with like peg board pieces all over it oh i can't remember the name of that one not solitaire because you can't play it with two it's not solitaire don't i'd have to look it up again we hmm. don't play it anymore right hmm. anyway it was chess okay yeah that's why we was able to think several steps ahead of everybody else yes what did ferdinand do to gonzalo de cordoba el gran capitan Ole. After Cordoba had captured Naples, and why? Oh, goodness, I don't remember. I know he took him, took away his authority and locked him up? No, he expelled him from Naples. Expelled him from Naples. Yeah. Can you remember why? Banished. Because he won and took, it should have been Ferdinand's glory? That's partly that. He he was getting all the adulation. Also, he was Castilian, and he expelled all the Castilian people from Naples. Yeah, I still think it was just because he was getting the credit and Ferdinand was a selfish jerk. <laughs> yes, I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> Number five. What did Henry VII want Ferdinand to call him? Not Gloria. I don't remember. It was a woman's name, I think. I can't remember. Brother. Oh! Yeah, he'd been calling simple. him cousin, and but kings normally called each other brother. Oh, said, I'm thinking of Please the... Please call me brother. Yeah, I'm starting to think of the Catherine 
Katerina episodes where everybody had a pseudonym. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's Ludovico Sforza. He was yes. Margarita. <laughs> yes. Madame Margarita. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, that wasn't too great. We're getting to the point where we've done so many people that I'm conflating different episodes in my head. And we've done, since we did Ferdinand, we've done Christmas and yes. four lots of Katerina Sforza and, and the cameos. So, yes, it's been a while. Yeah. Still not too bad. Not too bad I'll at say all. it's not nope. too bad. <laughs> got monobrow. <laughs> and thankfully that's done. Yeah, the unibrow. <laughs> Why it needed to be said, I don't know. But I think you're right. He was looking at somebody with an absolutely ridiculous unibrow and then said, oh, but you don't have one. No, don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> You've got lovely eyebrows. What a thing to say. Mm. Keep in history. You do mm -hmm. not have this. No good yes. for you. <laughs> now on to Thomas Stanley. Yes, it's all over. Thank goodness. <laughs> Come with me, if you will. The battle is over. The ground is littered with the dead and the dying. Moaning, screaming, and wails of anguish come from all directions. The women have come to identify their husbands and sons. You see your lord, Thomas, having his armor removed by his squire. He looks as exhausted as you are. Your wounds are being tended to, but you are still grateful you survived. Just as a so-called doctor is yanking your bandage tight on your arm, you hear the sound of a horse at full gallop. You jump up, spinning around, grabbing your sword, looking to see the threat. It's a messenger, riding hell-bent for leather straight to your lord. He comes to a skidding stop near Thomas, jumps off, and kneels before him. My lord, you need to put your armor back on. There's another rebellion, and the king needs you and your men there now. You can't stop. Thomas thinks for a minute, then sighs. This was the third rebellion we just put down. Will this ever end? I haven't been off the field in over a year. He thinks for a minute, then calls to his retainers. As fast as possible, survey our men. Find out how many are in any condition to move. They may not be able to fight, but they can swell the appearance of our ranks. Send messengers to all my lands and gather more men to meet us. As he turns away, you're close enough to hear him mutter. Soon there will be no more men to call. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Stanley was born in 1435 to Thomas Stanley, mm -hmm. the first Baron Stanley, and Joan Goosehill. We even know that Joan was the daughter of Sir Robert Goosehill and that her mother was Elizabeth Fitzallen, the Earl of Arundel's daughter, a descendant of Edward I. So he has a distant claim to the throne. Ah. Yeah, totally unusual. We know more <laughs> about the mother than we really do about the father. <laughs> yeah, that is unusual. <laughs> this is the family that held the title prior to the Howards. They will be prominent in our podcast season two. Mm. The Howard family. Definitely. That means that Thomas Stanley and his brothers are also descendants of Edward I. So they have a blood claim to power, and I'm restating that... Was there anyone in England who didn't have a better claim than Henry, do you think? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes sense when you think of how 
they were constantly intermarrying into the nobility to retain the lands and to make their lands larger. Mm. So, of course, since Edward III and Edward I had more than one son, you ended up with more people related to them because they can't necessarily marry princes or princesses. Oops. <laughs> Or princes, a, if they had daughters. Yeah, and there's a finite number of nobles, so... Yeah, there's so bound to the be end. Sort of, yeah, yeah it, it's like the Howards were related to the Bolands. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas and William... So William is Thomas's younger brother. Mm -hmm. Their father was prominent in the court of Henry VI as his comptroller, the Lieutenant of Ireland, <laughs> and later the Constable of Chester Castle. He held other offices, titles, and lands which would have required him to be constantly on the move. We can imagine that he would not have had much time to spend with his sons, but his position, wealth, and power would be what set up his sons for success if they chose to follow their father. All right. Mm-hmm. We also should note that the family's holdings were in the marcher lands, and the Stanleys were marcher lords. For, I don't think we've discussed this before... Um, marcher lands were lands held in areas closest to the borders of England, i.e. Hmm. Welsh or Wales and Scotland. Um, they were often under attack from the people on the other side of the border. Marcher was the name for the borders at the time. It wasn't border. It was marcher. Which I oh, found interesting. Right? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I've often wondered why they were called marcher lords. But yeah. I obviously didn't wonder quite enough to look it up. I looked up the etymology. <laughs> <laughs> Marcher lords specifically were tasked by the king to defend those lands and prevent incursions from getting farther into England. It's one of the few areas where if you did not do your duty, the king could yank it because it's part of your contract for holding those lands. Right. So if you were not good, you wouldn't stay a Marcher lord. Mm. So anybody we cover in the future who is a marcher lord and the family has retained those lands for a long time tells you something about the family and their antecedents. Like they were obviously good at battle because if you weren't good at battle, you weren't going to be a marcher lord. Did you get any specific benefits from the fact that you're, you've obviously got to put yourself out a bit more, haven't you? For... Nope. nope. You got to keep the title in the land. Yeah. Quite often, the marcher lords were less wealthy than most of the other lords because they were spending all their money on defense. Mm. I did not really see any benefit except for honor. Honor is big at this time, but I don't True. know if it's worth it. And you get to live in a particularly beautiful part of the country. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't want it, so I don't know. It is possible that Thomas and his brother William... We'll be discussing, who Lucy will be discussing in the next episode, are two of the few people of whom there are still a number of properties, buildings, and documents still in existence that they specifically built, wrote, owned, etc. Mm. Most of the lands for a lot of these nobles have been divided up and sent out or spread out, and documents get destroyed. But I found quite a few documents for Thomas mentioning his brother and his brother's holdings were mm. mentioned in a couple of court documents. It was really interesting. Yes, they've got quite a lot of stuff. And like most people at this time, their stuff doesn't it's, it's sort of spread around quite a lot. 
Yes, yes. They've, got, they've, got, they've got the Welsh bit and the Lancastrian bit, but they've got other bits just, you think, oh, God, that must be, that must be a, a pain, really. Yes. <laughs> got to go all the way over there to see to see to this particular property. Yeah, and in order to see it, you have to pack up your entire house to go there. Mm. It's not just get on a horse and go to a house that's already set up. You drag all your furniture and everything with yeah. you. Yeah. I don't know. We don't see much of Thomas until 1450. He would have spent his youngest years in the company of his mother and his siblings, three brothers and three sisters. Growing up in the Marcher lands would have been tough. The population in Marcher lands was much more sparse than areas farther from the borders. There's several reasons for that. There's the fact that they're constantly under attack, so there's natural attrition, and trying to get more people to come in into an area that's so unsettled is difficult. Mm-hmm. Latham House was a fortified manor, but not quite a castle. It would not have been considered a comfortable home in any way, but would have been the best for the safety of the family. He would not have spent all of his childhood there. Like all wealthy families, they would have moved from house to house throughout the year. And they would have lived in those others, those other holdings as well. And one I really wanted to point out is the Castle of Peel on the Isle of Man. All right. Yeah. Hmm. They also have a castle in Liverpool, Knowlesley Manor, which is unknown where it is. I wrote it down, but I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the interesting things is his father was the lord of the Isle of Man, basically a titular king. For the Isle of Man. So he's the Lord of Man. Yes. Mm, Great title. I've not been to the Isle of Man, but apparently it's very, very beautiful. Is that the one where they have the race? Yes. The TT race. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Their trips to the Isle of Man may well have resembled a royal progress. If you think about it, he is the Lord of... Man, he's a titular king, and you have to keep up appearances. So while you would never do that in England, as soon as you land on the Isle of Man, you need to, I am now the lord of the island, I need to appear as such. So at that point, things that you wouldn't have seen them do in England all of a sudden show up, like wearing purple, having robes, doing processions, and... He would have been required to stay in the summer as there was an annual court sitting of parliament that he had to attend and rule over. Yeah, I think they've still got some sort of parliament. I'm not quite sure what. I wonder how many people are actually living on the Isle of Man at that time. I don't know. Hmm. I didn't think of looking up a population. I wonder if they'd even know what the population was. Hmm. I would think so for tax reasons. Yes. As Thomas grew up, he would have been taken by his father to aid in many of his duties. Instead of many noblemen who sent their sons off directly to another nobleman until the point where they have gone through all of their training, because of Thomas's father's position, we know that he brought his son along with him in the hope that his positions would become hereditary. His hope was that he's the comptroller. His son's going to be the controller. So he needs specific training in those duties. So he'd be the one who'd know most about it. So he'd be the obvious choice for the Exactly. Job. Exactly. Right. We do have hints and snippets of Thomas being around during many of the important decisions that his father was making. So while we don't know a lot about him until 1450, we do know where he was 
basically, I would think, acting as a page for his father to learn the ropes. Which is also interesting because those positions were not hereditary in any way, shape, or form. Each king chose his own successor for whichever position he wanted. They were used as bargaining chips. So the fact that his father assumed that his son would get it gives you an idea of his closeness to Henry VI. Hmm. Like he had enough confidence in his relationship with the king that he made that jump, that leap to say, my son is definitely taking over my positions. We don't have it in writing anywhere, but that's the only thing I could logically eke out of the fact that he was training his son so in-depthly at a younger age than normal. I thought that made sense. Hmm. Yeah. There is some evidence that Thomas was sent to the Earl of Salisbury, Richard Neville, for a part of his training. Earl of Warwick. <laughs> the Neville family will never get away with it. Yeah, I, I know William fought alongside the Earl of Salisbury in uh, the Wars of the Roses. So, yeah, they were obviously links with the families. Yes. Thomas actually marries into the family later in his life. Quite a high-profile marriage. Mm, I think so. For the time. I mean, the Nevilles were the big family, weren't they? I mean, they were, yes, they they were. the big name. They were the kingmakers. Mm. In 1454, we see Thomas listed as a henchman. Eventually henchman. Oh, right. For Henry VI. But it's not the same. Yeah, it's not no. the same. It's not a, a sort of like a bouncer or anything. It's a completely different no. thing, isn't it? In the spelling of the writing at the time, it's H-E-N-X-M-E-N. Basically, a young personal attendant. There he would have been taught languages, writing, jousting, the rules of court, singing, dancing, and all the other skills he would need to serve the king and to be witty at court for entertainment. Yeah, I don't this think your is... average bouncer gets that sort of no. training. <laughs> <laughs> no. This basically was an entry position in the court. He was successful in it, obviously, and we know that because later in the same year, he was listed as an esquire to the king. That should have taken longer, from what I've read. You shouldn't become a henchman and then become an esquire within the same year. That's not really supposed to occur. So does that mean he was good at it or that he had the name behind it? Yeah. Or his father was amazing. Don't know. Can't answer that. He wasn't prominent enough for people to be writing about him, and unfortunately, he didn't keep a diary. <laughs> I wish everybody None did. of them do. No. Not till we get to Edward VI. Yes. So his father was still comptroller for the king, and we can safely assume that like Robert Cecil, the son of William Cecil in Elizabeth's time, he would have been learning directly from his father at court and also carrying out tasks for him. This would have been critical and it would have been critical for the rest of his life but he didn't know it yet he was at the court when the first yorkist rebellion occurred by richard plantagenet the duke of york he was now in place although not in an important place to witness all of the court chaos but in a slightly protected position to allow him to learn how to expertly play the game of politics his father was in danger but because of his lower rank, he was there learning, but not actually somebody that would have been targeted. Okay. I think that that 
is one of the reasons why he ends up being successful. He got to see what everybody was doing and what worked and what didn't. Yes, I mean, he's right in the middle of history in the making, really, isn't he? Yes. To discuss his father's actions is out of the scope of this podcast, but suffice it to say that the, his father stood on a nice edge and always won, and his son got to see how to do the same. And the reason why I say he always won, he didn't lose any land and title. That's a win. Mm. Yeah, especially at this time. <laughs> yes. And his father managed to be, end up on the councils of both Henry VI and the Protectorate Council of Richard, Duke of York. So at a time, Henry VI was incapacitated, but instead of him stepping back, there was a protectorate where mm. Richard, Duke of York, took over the council while Henry was there in Henry's name, technically. Yeah. His father was one of only a few, and I do mean very few, that managed to do the same thing, stay on both councils and managed to stay on the good side during this time period. It was very much an us and them situation. In 1456, when Henry took back the crown for the final time, Thomas's father, Thomas, was created finally Thomas Lord Stanley, first Baron Stanley. So this is when the title comes to the family. They had essentially made it in court society. Before, they would have been knights and they would have been gentlemen, but they weren't part of the nobility. They now are. Hmm. Nice. Yes. So he <laughs> obviously succeeded. Hmm. Between 1456 and 1459, we find records of Thomas and his father continually traveling to their various holdings to put down rebellions and riots. Signs of the times being so out of control, this is when they just kept moving. Thomas, at this point, was old enough to control his own troops, and he did have some lands, and they never stopped moving. It was about two years before he was able to set foot in his own house because of the constant battles. And this is rebellions outside of the main uh, Wars of the Roses battles. This is the Wars of the Roses battles. This is the Wars of the Roses, okay. Yes, you have pockets of Yorkists, pockets of Lancastrians. So you'd get the Lancastrians would take control and the Yorkists would rebel and vice versa. And with the family constantly working with whoever was in power at the time, were defending on both sides and fighting on both sides. And their lands were in the marcher lands, so it was already sparsely populated, and they're calling their men up from there. Eventually, there would be no more. Mm. That was the fear. If the rebellions continued, the Stanleys would become useless to the king because they could no longer provide any military help. But it's interesting that you say that they fight on both sides because this seems to be a Stanley trait, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it very much does. In my reading of William. We are currently talking about the father, so more often than not, he's fighting on the Lancastrian side. Mm. But his son, with his marriage to the Nevilles, often fought on both. Mm. Like, How do you decide? Your wife is part of this family, but your king is part of this family. And it was a surprise that his father let the eldest son make the decision of who he was going to be part of. Whereas most things in this time period is the patriarch of the family decided for the entire family. Yes, you'd think if the dad was fighting on a particular side, he would automatically 
want his son fighting on the same side because, well, for a start, you might find yourself on opposite sides, you know, facing each yeah. other. Or, um, you know, you presumably want as many people as possible on your side. Yeah. But as we know back. from later when Thomas and William are both fighting, it's no bad thing to have people on both sides because you're yeah. always going to win. You're going yes. to lose as well, but you're always going to be on the You'll winning side. You'll lose a side. lot less. Yeah. Yes. These times would have been critical to Thomas's training in warfare and statescraft. Instead of fighting outside of the country, he's fighting inside of the country. But because he's also fighting in so many different areas, he's getting experience with different types of fighting styles. This is something we haven't really covered before. If you looked at a map of the type of military people you could pull from different areas of England, it's very different. The Welsh were fantastic at one thing. Yorkists were another. And then you go farther south and you get the longbowmen. Northmen were much stronger at hand-to-hand -hand combat. So just like accents and dialects were focused on specific areas, so were fighting styles. That's interesting. And, it, and because he's fighting against them, all of these different fighting styles, he would have had to have learned to adapt quickly to a completely different fighting style. You can't mm. have one type of style and be able to defend against all different types of styles. If you're not flexible enough and able to change and adapt fast enough, you just get wiped out. That's probably the best training he could have had. Yes. Mm. If he was always fighting the French, the French had a specific style. Once mm. you get that type of military together for long enough, they end up becoming monochromatic in their type of fighting. If you went to Germany, monochromatic in their type of fighting. But in smaller areas, like if you're in France and there's a French rebellion, they'd run into the same thing. When they create a big military, they pull from everywhere and then amalgamate their fighting styles into one fighting style, hence why I say monochromatic. Mm. But when you're fighting against pockets of areas, those fighting styles haven't been adapted into a larger field. So you have to constantly be moving and constantly changing the way you attack, the way you defend, everything. It was really fascinating to read that. And if you're into military history, I really encourage you to start reading up about the fighting styles in England and just how different they were. You start finding out that one entire area, nobody used swords. They were all axe fighters. And watching a swordman try to deal with an axeman was hilarious. I didn't so if, I wonder if that would be based on where the Danes had originally been. Possibly. They are throwback. Mm. I don't know. I didn't go too far into it because it was quite a big book. Yes. <laughs> I was it's thinking this is really to... fascinating, but I don't have time. Yes, it's easy to to slide down that slope, I think. Yes, yes. And it's interesting to find out that there are certain areas where the women were trained to defend themselves and other areas were absolutely not. Right. You do not touch that weapon. Yeah. And it looks like the areas where the Vikings were <laughs> are the right. areas where the women were defending themselves. And they still learn to defend themselves. Southern England, I didn't find a mention of it. I didn't look too deeply, but I didn't find a mention of it. But it was settled more. Mm. There would be less reason for a woman to learn how to wield an axe or a sword. Especially if they were in land. Might not yes. uh, ever see face, anything. Face the same problems, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, really fascinating. 
The other thing that is very fascinating is the stagecraft. You can't kill all of your subjects just because they're rebelling. If you do, you have no kingdom. Hmm. And if you bring your land, your manpower down low enough, you are now open to invasion because you don't have enough to defend yourself. So that's a really, really, I don't know. I kept thinking of it, of the bear on a ball, dancing on a ball in yeah. the circus. How do you manage to get people who hate you to come back to you in a way that uh, I just killed your friends in that rebellion, but you really need to like me? It's amazing that no one did invade England during the Wars of the Roses because... They were chaotic and out yes. of control. Yes, that would have been the time to do it. They were already divided. You don't need to do the divide and conquer thing. You just mm. only have the conquer part. Yeah. Crazy. You have your entire land falling apart. You are... Watching your king and your father use a combination of force, threats, and cajolery to accomplish a settled land holding. And you have to do that every time you turn around, because once you've got this area settled, the next area blows up in your face. What I'd like... Oh, no. What I loved about the records that I was reading are the recognizances people had to pay to ensure the peace was kept. That confirmed to me that Henry VII was not the only lord or king to demand these. Mm. He did exceed every other king in the amounts and the number demanded in previous times, but this was basically the only stick that they could hold over people. If you took away any of their land, then they couldn't provide you military aid because now they didn't have access to those people or that money. Mm, that's true. So what you, yeah, so you basically held money in trust, saying, if you're good, I'll give you back the money. If you're not, then I'm going to demand it for you. So they're not actually handing over the money in this case. They're just saying, yes, if I rebel, I have to give this up. And I've agreed to it. There is not going to be a court trial. It's just a decision by the king. And that's the only way the king or the person taking over the crown could have done it. If you take away their money, they can't pay for men at arms or their equipment. If you take away their lands, they now don't have access to those men at arms. And the kings apparently weren't allowed to call on those lands. So also, taken... if you start taking these things away, you've got another rebellion on your hands, haven't you? Yes, because you've just taken away somebody's livelihood and people mm. don't like giving that stuff up. No, they don't. Yeah. I can't see how they managed to settle this, honestly. If they had kept both families alive all the way through, I don't think the Wars of the Roses would have closed out. I think they honestly had to be basically eradicated, which is what ended up happening. It's just so chaotic. Well, I remember when I was trying to write write the thing for the website, trying to get it. I did it mainly to get it straight in my own head because yes. it was just there were so many wars, so many and battles, and constantly changing sides. Mm. Historian Elaine Bushner, thank you very much. She did a dissertation that this is when Thomas learned to be secretive in all things and never be guided by his emotions. He watched everyone who made an emotional decision die during the Wars of the Roses. It honestly was, I am now angry and I'm going against you. That's how the Earl of Warwick went down. Mm. 
technically George Duke of Clarence did the same thing when he got angry. It was anger. It wasn't a logical decision to go against his brother. No, no, definitely not. I mean, he was the second richest person in the country and he obviously decided, well, that's not good enough. Yes. So we find from now on, Thomas's decisions have nothing to do with his emotional ties to anybody. He becomes almost a robot and I don't know how you can turn that away. I don't think I could. I don't think I could just shut off my emotions. If I'm upset that you've hurt somebody I love, I'm not going to say, yeah, but you're still my best bet. Yeah, I I felt that a bit when I was reading about William, that William was the one rushing about doing things and Thomas was this sort of... Automaton. Yeah, just this unmoving thing that would just sit on a horse on the top of a hill and watch it all happen and then go home. (laughs) Yes. It's very strange the farther you get into him that you realize that he may have the emotions, but they never seem to show up Hmm. in his decisions, ever. In 1459, Thomas's father passed away, and Thomas now became the new Lord Stanley Baron. Thomas was forced to choose which side of the War of the Roses he would be on at the Battle of Bloor Heath in 1459. Hmm. This is one of the prominent battles in the Wars of the Roses. Thomas's father had played the sides beautifully during his lifetime, but what was Thomas going to do? Thomas had been married to Lady Eleanor Neville in 1458. And if you know your players, and we've already mentioned a few things in the Roars of the Roses, then you know she's the daughter of Richard Neville, the fifth Earl of Salisbury. More importantly, the sister of Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker. Mm. That's not a tie that you're expected to drop. When you marry into a family, you're expected to marry into the family for loyalty reasons as well. Also, it would be a huge bonus to have married into the Neville family. Yes. I mean, you're not going to just throw that away, are you? No. No, not at all. Thomas's father was a Lancastrian, a highly placed official. But Thomas, being married to the sister of the Earl of Warwick, who's on the side of the Yorkists, may have been his father hedging his bets as well, but it's not mentioned. I couldn't find it. So I'm not sure if his father married him off to the opposite side, specifically to hedge his bets. It was a little early for him to make that marriage to say that that's why his father married him to the Nevilles. Hmm date of the marriage wasn't it wasn't really at that point where they were taking over henry it would have been the protectorate and the protectorate was so successful in turning the finances of the king around at that point you're not looking at this is going to turn into a civil war yeah i mean when the king got better people thought oh yeah they were not happy (laughs) it was doing so well yes (laughs) And at first they thought that the Yorkists were still going to remain in the council. And if it wasn't for other nobles getting in there and saying, no, I want my power back, even though I sucked, the country would have been fine. Somerset. Yes. (laughs) We're not covering him, so I didn't want to get too many names out there. (laughs) So now they have one foot on either side of this disaster. Now, you have the possibility of the father going, oh, crud we're now fighting going to end up fighting on other opposite sides but it also means 
that if one of them stays on one side and the other one stays on the other, there is less chance of whoever becomes king landing an attainder on the family and taking mm. all their lands. Yes. What they end up doing, if they do something, is usually punish the opposite. So if you've got two brothers, one brother's Lancastrian, one brother's Yorkist, the Yorkist win. They may punish the Lancastrian holding brother, but not to a massive amount. And as I saw in some of the court documents, those lands ended up with his brother. Yes, the family is always fine. Yes. Yeah. And in Thomas and William's case, I did see that if Thomas lost something, William snuck him money and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So they didn't lose anything at all. No, they, they'd got this really well sorted, it seemed to me. Mm-hmm. I did not see another family that played this this well. Mm. The fortunes were way more up and down, whereas the Stanleys seemed to be quite even. I was seriously impressed. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is, this is what they're famous for, isn't it? I mean, the whole Bosworth thing, this is their... This is their moment, and this is how it all starts developing. This is their modus operandi, yeah. Yeah, and it gets more and more refined as we go. During the Battle of Bloor Heath, the Lancastrians under Lord Audley, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yes, you're right there. <laughs> they did make a critical mistake. They sent their forces over a bottlenecking bridge. This meant that only part of the army was able to cross at a time, which meant they were much weaker than the Yorkist force on the other side of the bridge. The Yorkists, being led by the Earl of Warwick, were in a great position to win the battle because of this mistake and took full advantage. You're only going to send 20 men over at a time. <laughs> mm. I'm afraid the Lancastrians often seem to make a complete mess of it. Yes. What I started thinking was maybe they were hoping for, like... Was it the Battle of Hastings, where the guy with all the pro all the men on one side thought he'd be honorable and let the entire army come across before he started the battle? Oh, the Yorkists weren't going to do that. No, no they just why started would you? eradicating everybody. Uh, I prefer eradicating to killing. It sounds to me, it sounds a little less nasty. <laughs> I don't know, culling, <laughs> culling. Yeah. Oh gosh. Ooh. Thomas saw which way the battle was going, and he launched his men and his brother William to aid Richard Neville. He made a choice. This is the first choice. So this is the Earl of Warwick, the Kingmaker. They ultimately chose the Yorkists and his allegiance to his father-in-law. But also, he waited to the very last moment to choose the side that was most likely to win. He also then sent out patrols to the surrounding area to ensure that no more Lancastrians could join the battle. So he didn't send all of his troops. No, this is all sounding quite familiar. <laughs> <laughs> this seems to be exactly what he does in all of the battles, isn't it? It's fantastic. Mm. It's brilliant. He's been told by his lord, so he's chosen Richard Neville, to bring all of your men into the battle. And he deliberately refuses to do so but in such a way that ensures their winning. Mm. So after this, I found that Richard spent a lot less time questioning Thomas about his deployment tactics because this worked so well. So mm. it's the first I've heard of it, basically making sure nobody else can join because at that point, 
England getting reinforcements was not like this huge group of people coming in at one time. Because they were coming from multiple different places and distances, they would slowly stagger in. So him being able to send out the patrols would be like 20 people stopping six people from joining the battle. And then they go and find the next group. And then they go and find the next group. It's not like sending half your military force to stop another force of 200 men joining the field. It, it didn't happen that way at this point in time. Yeah, you imagine you'd, you'd have your two armies and they'd be ready, all, yes. all, all accounted for and standing opposite each other. And then they'd shout, charge, and then that's it. But no, obviously, it's a lot more straggly than that. Yes. Hmm. When we think about normal battles, we're thinking about this king going after this king, where they do land, wait till everybody's come across, organize everything and move forward in an orderly fashion. During the Wars of the Roses, that wasn't possible. If you started doing that, the other person would have time to come and attack you while you were still in your preparation moment. So they had to keep mm. it secret, which meant small cohorts of mm. a few people in one town a few people in this town, and they'd come in staggered hoping that they could get pe enough people together to create a military force before the other side could. That's why um, Edward IV would get in there quick and fight before Jasper Tudor had turned up with his Welsh ones. Yes, yes. And then Jas poor Jasper would turn up and the whole thing would be over. It's one of the reasons I found why civil wars did become more bloody than anything else. Because when you've got two gigantic forces fighting mm. in this time period, they tend to be willing to say, okay, we've killed so many men in front of your face. We now need to stop and talk this out. In a civil war, because you've got those small groups being stopped and killed, it's not as visual and not as easy to count. So mm. more deaths are required before everybody goes, whoa, 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 this has gone way too far. There must have been bodies strewn across the countryside. I mean, they must have been finding them for weeks afterwards. All over the place. It's pretty grim, And the isn't worst it? part is, is because of civil wars the way they are, this was mentioned in the Come With Me, you had that battle close to the town where those people were coming from, so their wives would come out to try to find them. Mm. That's how they were identified. That's why I had the wailing in there. You... You as a wife could have been looking out of your window watching the battle and watching your husband get cut down or your son get cut down. Mm. It's just brutal. Civil wars are the most emotionally taxing, apparently, because it affects everybody. Mm. Yep. You don't get a telegram six months later saying, I'm sorry, your son was lost in the battle. No, you watched it. Just brutal. Absolutely brutal. This is the first time that we see Thomas keeping himself personally and his army fairly distanced from the battle for long enough to allow the battle to play out so he could be ensured of which side was going to win before he acted. He also ignored summons to join the battle from the Lancastrian players, basically sending excuses claiming that he had received a summons from both the king and the queen to go to different areas of the country and in could no and could no way answer both summons at the same time. So he'd answer neither. He'd answer neither, stating So well, he'd the, tell one that he was doing the other and the other that he was doing 
Afterwards, he would apologize. What he would say in the apology is, well, the king summoned me, so I got so far here. And then I got your summons, so I started going back this way. And then the king summoned me again, so I went back that way. Mm. So I couldn't actually attend any because who am I to listen to? It's quite but clever. Presumably, everyone was getting these contradictory yep. um, instructions, but were actually deciding to go with one or the other and getting on yes. with it. But yeah. Yes. At the same time as sending the apology, he sends a letter of congratulations to Warwick for the victory. Yay, we did mm -hmm. it. And I was on your side right from the beginning. I hope you realize that. Yes. I'm going to be mentioning the historian Elaine Buchner quite a bit because her dissertation was probably the best source we have, and it was really well done. So I'm just going to call her Elaine all the way through from now on. She believes that all of this may have been planned between Thomas and the Earl of Warwick before the battle even started. Though we do note that Thomas himself did not get involved with the battle himself or his core group of military that he kept with him. So does that mean that he had been right in the Earl's pocket from the get-go and this is plausible deniability? Or is it his own strategy to the end? We don't know. It's a strategy that he continues, so... I'm thinking it's his own. Yeah, unless he mm. learnt it from Warwick and thought, yeah, that worked great. Let's yeah. do that. But Warwick didn't. Warwick was very much, I'm here, I'm doing this. There wasn't much intriguing where he kept things secret. He was very much in everybody's face. Mm. This is Thomas's personally working both sides for the first time and winning regardless. If the Yorkists won, look, my brother saved you. Lucy will go farther into that. Mm. If the Lancastrians won, look, I didn't betray you. I just couldn't answer both summons and needed to think. Clever. Very. Sneaky, but clever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, this did not get pulled off quite so cleanly. Some of William's men had been captured, and before they were executed or died of their wounds, they told the Lancastrians that they were acting on orders from Thomas. But they did this under torture. Yeah. So... Who knows? Thomas continued to play the safe game. The Battle of Bloor Heath was a turning point in the contest for power during the Wars of the Roses. It changed the game from politics and skirmishes to all-out war. Thomas, somehow, did not join either force entirely. He took his army home, in fact. He explains it as, to the Lancastrians, I'm a marcher lord. And these battles are now coming from the Queen, who's with the Scottish. And the Scots are raiding, even though they're supposed to be supporting the Lancastrians. So I need to protect your border, don't I? And I need my men to do it. Brilliant tactic. He had already aided the Yorkists and put his neck out, sort of. Now, as the Yorkists were failing to win the subsequent battles and had to flee into exile... He was claiming, I didn't support them. I was positioned to hold the marches against the expected invasion. Mm. And yet at the same time, if the Yorkists had managed to get to his area, he could join the Yorkists at that time. Yep. Really, really clever. 
must have been exhausting. You're thinking, well, who, yes. who, who am I with today? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and can you imagine your underlings getting confused? Mm. <laughs> yes, presumably you have to announce every morning. Yes. Right, right lads, we're on the Yorkie side today. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You've got a little group hug in the morning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> He didn't easily slide through this. He was called to Parliament of Devils. Have we talked about the Parliament of Devils? No, I've come across it, but I don't think we've mentioned it. Okay, if I remember 100% correctly, this was a parliament that was called exclusively to attaint and punish the rebels. That would include Thomas. The command wanted him impeached, or the commander, Earl, Somerset, wanted him impeached and charged with treason which is a death sentence. The king, however, rejected the impeachment and the charges. If we remember, Henry VI was considered a saint because he was so kindly. Yes, he wasn't always, was he? But he certainly seems to have come across better than most. Yes. It is, I think, possible that he was still feeling loyalty to Thomas's dead father, Thomas. They were very close. Mm. They and were he was good very friends. loyal to people that he liked. Yes. The other thing is, is he may have been so kindly he couldn't force a death sentence. We do have records of him being called too gentle in multiple areas. This would never have happened if he hadn't been so gentle. He's being too gentle against the people who are going against him. And the queen may not have been able to push the issue because they had just lost a number of their higher up nobles and supporters who had died in the battles. So they needed all the help they could get, no matter how dubious. He hadn't all in all out said, I'm with the Yorkists. There's still a chance of keeping him with the Lancastrians. Yeah, we find this quite a lot because the, the monarchs think, well, they didn't, he didn't actually go against me. So I'll risk it and allow them to muster troops for my my benefit because I'm sure I'm sure they will love me really. Yeah, we come across this later with Richard. Yeah, you just think, why are you letting him get troops? Yes, because at so the same dangerous. time, if you do attain him, he may turn against you with the troops that he can get. Yes, it wow, it would be so hard. So in the end, the king and queen just decided to leave it. No mm. sanctions, no kudos, nothing. We're leaving it. For various reasons in the Wars of the Roses, the Yorkists changed their goal from influence to actually taking the crown outright. I'm honestly thinking it's because the Queen and Somerset wouldn't let them have that influence that was keeping the crown going. Mm. And at the end, it was either take them out or the country falls apart. In 1460, they re-entered England and managed to capture Henry VI. They did not get the crown, as the Lords still refused to actually throw off Henry. But they did start the protectorate, and Henry's son this time was disinherited, and the crown would now go to York when Henry died. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. At this point, Thomas recommitted to the Lancastrians under oath when the king and queen let him go. That was the deal. But that doesn't seem to have affected his political fortunes in any way. This is where that possible agreement with Warwick may have come into play. The Yorkists gave Thomas a great deal of grants as well as offices, including a seat on the new council when they managed to take over. 
So he really is playing both sides, and he just got bonuses for playing both sides. Mm. Yes, you can play both sides and still win. Yes. Mm. How? I don't know. I... I honestly don't know if, even with hindsight, anybody could have made better choices. Hmm. I wonder if if it was just expedient at the time, or whether they, him and his brother, sat down and said, OK, this is what we need to do. You do this, I'll do this. And then we're all going to be OK. Or whether I'm it not was just, sure. Yeah, whether it was just a sort of thing on the day, saying, OK, well... Let's play it by ear or something. We also have the debate of whether or not they were co-conspirators or if Thomas was just directing the actions of the entire family. Mm. It's hard to say because the messages sent back and forth between them apparently were done verbally. Nobody, no writing to be able to see. Mm. But the fact that the messages went back and forth tells me that they were discussing rather than orders. So I tend to think that the two brothers were working completely in concert the entire time they were basically equal partners. That's, yeah, that's the impression I got. Okay. So it's a family of intriguers <laughs> that were just insanely successful at it. Mm. After the Battle of Wakefield between the Yorkists and Lancastrians, Thomas's claim for saying he needed to protect the borders in that previous part we were discussing now becomes huge because the queen not only was there for protection, this time she was enlisting them into the battles. So now he has a direct, you know how I did this last time? This is why I need to go back there. It's a perfect out. Mm. Perfect out. Justifies stuff, stuff he's already done. Yes. And this way, Thomas finally comes out into the open as a dedicated Yorkist. First time. They also succeeded, and I say they because we're talking about William and Thomas, succeeded in gaining much more power. A rival family for power in Lancashire had been effectively wiped out. The men had died in battles and the women were sold off as wards. Huh. Not okay. slaves. But they're now wards. <laughs> well, of course they're wards. They had fought on the Lancastrian side. The Yorkists were in charge. The Yorkists were like, nope, your lands are our, now ours. And this left the Stanleys in basic sole control of Lancashire. He was also now critical to the Yorkists for the strength of his military that he could bring to bear in the north against the queen and his positioning. His lands are directly in the way. But this also makes him critical for the Lancastrians. If they can mm. sway him, then that border now becomes an open gate. You can just walk right in. Yes, and he's got form, really, hasn't he? He's already shown that he's quite happy to swing. Yes. <laughs> in 1461, Edward IV was declared king by acclamation and then proclaimed king at Westminster. Thomas was with him in the Battle of Towton in the hopes to once and for all secure the throne. Thomas is under the understanding now that Edward has the king. He's been acclaimed. He's been proclaimed. Henry VI is incompetent and nobody likes the queen. You would think this is all done, but the king is not secure until the queen, King Henry VI, and their son Edward were taken care of. 
There's mm. still not only a king, there is an heir out and running around. And you have a queen that is, was she one of the she-wolves of France? I'm not sure, but she was infinitely more comp competent than the, than the husband. Yes. And she was the one getting all of the help from the Scots and the French. Mm. Thomas was so critical in this battle that Edward IV delayed his forces, almost dangerously so, to give Thomas the time to join him. Apparently, the area that Thomas was in charge of in Lancashire had the best archers in England at the time. So remember I said everybody has a strength? Mm. His was long-distance archery. And if you can take out people before they even get to your forces, that's the best way to go. I find this probably the most unsettling port here. Um, Thomas was 25. <laughs> <laughs> I did not accomplish nearly that much, nor was I that clever at 25. They had to cram it in, though, didn't they? Because they didn't know when it was going to stop, did they? Yes. And he's playing this political game flawlessly so far. Yeah. Haven't lost a thing. I have trouble with office politics. <laughs> I just say, I, I think I see what you mean about him being an automaton, really. Just... Yeah, there's a bit. There's a touch of Ferdinand about it. Just work, just working ahead. Yeah, a few steps, thinking right. Okay, and that should sort that. And yeah, that'll work fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If this happens, I do this, and if mm. I, this happens, I go to Plan X. Mm. It seems like he constantly goes down the alphabet, no matter what happens. Oh, mm -hmm. that's okay. I've already got this figured out. Yeah. This battle unfortunately didn't turn out exactly as anyone had hoped on the Yorkist side. They won. But Henry VI, his wife, and his son escaped. So they left the country, which seems like a win. But they're still out there and still able to get more support from France, Scotland, and other places. Thomas was heavily rewarded for his support to Edward. He was confirmed as Lord of the Isle of Man, which was up for debate. Somebody had contested it, so it had been in courts for quite a number of years. Mm -hmm. He was given prominent duties in the coronation. He was made Lord High Steward. Later, he would be given even more prestigious role of the Lord Steward of the King's household, which means he now is in control of the entire household and basically outranks everybody, and of course, a position on the council. I would like to say that the choices for Edward were fewer than they had been for Henry. There's less noblemen that were loyal to you. I mean, half of the nobility was fighting for Henry. Mm. So you can't just say, oh, I've got everybody to choose from. And a great deal of the higher nobility had been killed off by the Wars of the Roses over the years. It was already in decline before the, Rose of the Ro Wars of the Roses, but it really plummeted during the Wars of the Roses. They died. That's another thing that's different from Civil War and wars in France or anywhere else. If you're a high-up lord fighting for, for England from France, yes. you get captured and ransomed. In mm. Civil War, they have to kill you. Yes. Yeah. That's... Um... Civil wars are gruesome. Very. Mm. If we were to only look at the offices and grants given to Thomas, it could seem like he's one of the most important nobles in history because of the amount of power he was just given. While in reality, there were fewer noblemen around to disseminate the rewards too. Yeah, I suppose you've got to, you've got each nobleman has got to take on more more duties, responsibility, yeah, land. Mm. 
Yes. Although there was some debate about the effectiveness of the council prior to and then after the Orcas takeover. Some people say that the council had become overswelled during the years prior. You don't want to make offense, so you make your council bigger and bigger and bigger Mm. to the point where there's more arguing than there are decisions. So there is kind of a sweet spot for the number of people you want on any sort of council. And same now, if you get a group together to make decisions, the smaller the group, the easier it is to make those decisions. Mm. In the spring of Parliament 1461, Thomas is finally listed on paper as a Yorkist. So we're going quite a number of years before he was willing to put his stamp down. There may be no turning back now for the Stanleys, but the battle for the crown, what they didn't realize, is far from over. Yes, they've just blundered there. Yes, they're making (laughs) the assumption that it's now all settled. It's not. During that parliament, all of Henry's grants were taken back by the crown, except for the grants to Thomas. Mm. There were a couple of grants that were given to other lords that are still on the Yorkist side that were still taken back by the crown. Somehow Thomas manages to keep all of theirs. Really strange. And there is nowhere written down why. He had received grants, offices, and lands from Henry, and he was allowed to keep them, as well as those that were then given to him from Edward. They're going nothing Mm. but up. Yes. Well, that is odd because, yes, because, yeah, playing both sides, you would think that eventually one side would say, look, for goodness sake. Enough is enough. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No. And then on top of that, Thomas was then given even more power. His office as Lord Steward had changed in scope under Edward. He was now basically an equal partner to the king in reforming both the household and the political administration at the court. You now have fewer men on the council, so you have to rearrange how it's going. There was also a lot of unnecessary loss of funds because it was overblown and a lot of things just needed to be changed. You don't need 14 people to change a a light bulb, if we're talking Mm -hmm. about now. So it's that kind of thing. We only need three people to do this for the year round. We don't need 11 people to clean the the crown. Let's just do two. So it was a lot of that. And then how orders were issued. It didn't go through as many people. There was quite a bit of administration, reformation, really, happening. And is that down to Thomas? It's not down to Thomas, but it seems like the decisions were Edward and Thomas. Edward and Thomas decided what to do together, which put a lot of noses out of joint, which is why we know about it. Right. You're getting. I didn't realize he was this powerful. Neither did I. When Mm. we first pulled him, I was like, great, we'll get to see about Margaret's life from the other side because I really like (laughs) Margaret. And now it's more, I know exactly why she chose him to be married to. Yeah. This is massive. No wonder. This is a real power marriage, wasn't it? Yes. It was huge. So with that household and political administration reform, it's amazing how much it was needed after the horrendous management of Henry's council. Edward was willing to reform to ensure the country and court could recover. They were beyond bankrupt. All of the money had gone to the Wars of the Roses, and 
all of the money had gone to the number of people that you have on council. Whenever somebody is given an office, they are given a what they termed a pension, which we would consider a salary. And when you have 50 counselors instead of 20, you're paying that salary to 50 people, which then, if you don't have the money, becomes owing in kind. So now you're saying in the future, we're going to give you lands, we're going to give you food, we're going to give you whatever we can make up to give you that salary. Mm. There was no way the Crown could afford to pay these people, even if they lasted another 20 years. It just was impossible. There was not enough income. You've also hatcheted the income when you had the Civil War. You're now taking people away from their livelihood that you get taxes off of. Yeah. So you're not only spending too much, you've now reduced your income. This was something that Edward and Thomas realized and made huge changes to rectify the situation. Otherwise, the country was just going to fail. It was going to fall apart. Yeah, I knew that Edward had done some sensible financial dealings, but I didn't realize that Thomas Thomas was part of it. Yes, and it's not just mm. financial. It's a complete revamp of how the court and the king's household worked. It's mm. fascinating to see the number of positions that completely disappear because they're unnecessary. And there's no mm. such thing during Edward's time of a pension being given to somebody as a reward. They still had tasks to do. There were no sinecures in Edward's beginning mm. reign because they couldn't afford it. It was impossible. The next thing that they needed to work on was the finances. and They were in a terrible state. Not only had Henry spent more than he got, he also told people they didn't have to pay things if they came to him with a sob story. So there was a yes, yeah. I, yes. I know that yes, everything went completely out of control, didn't it, under Henry? Yes, and it was so easy. Apparently, all you had to do was bow to him and put, shed a couple of tears, and all of a sudden, all of your debts were forgiven. All of what them. A nice man. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad we can't repair a single thing, and people are starving. <laughs> Edward clawed all that back. Now, if Henry VI had said, you don't owe this, you now do again. On the other hand, Edward did not make the country rebel against him by saying, you owe it right now. He was perfectly willing to do reasonable installments of payments over years to get it back to a reasonable amount of money coming in and not so much that the people, even the Lancastrians that were still in the country, would say, you're being so unreasonable, I'm going to rebel again. That was very clever. Yeah, that's quite a tightrope, isn't it? Yes. And I thought when I first read about the Roar of the Roses that it was the Earl of Warwick making these decisions because he was so powerful. But mm. really, Edward was actually doing more than he's given credit for. If you if you go down and look at the discussions, the decisions, and everything written up for the instructions, it is very much Edward coming to these decisions. Yes, Neville is there advising him, and Thomas is there, and they're discussing these things together. But Neville, the Earl of Warwick, is slowly being pushed out. Yes. Now, I, yeah, I always assumed that Neville was pulling the strings, and that eventually mm -hmm. Edward thought, no, I've had enough, I'm king. It seems to be more along the lines that Neville is fantastic in war and battle and mm. strategy and not so good at running a kingdom. Mm. 
So it doesn't look like he's saying, I don't like you. I'm pushing you out. It's more like, that's not, not the, the man best for the job. idea. Yeah, exactly. I keep thinking of Churchill. Fantastic prime minister during wartime, but not so great after war. Mm. It must have been a great shock for him when people said, no, we don't want you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I did for you? <laughs> Thomas, as the Lord Steward, was the one to ensure both the thrift of the household, managing any and all expenses, but also having to create the appearance of extravagance that's expected for monarchy. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We are at a time where what you present to the world is the truth. If a king does not wear fancy clothing, then he's not obviously a good king because he can't gain wealth. Mm. Thomas managed to do this through really micromanaging every account, ensuring that he got the absolute most possible for the least cost. This included renegotiating all contracts with suppliers, ensuring that if you buy food for that night, you buy just enough to show the largesse of the, mon of the monarchy. If we remember, they always had to give alms to the poor at the gates mm -hmm. while still providing the alms to the poor, looking extravagant, but not spending for a single extra bite other than that. I'm not sure how you come to a decision of exactly how many arm, alms are correct, but that's one of the things he did, and it was really down to micromanaging individual purchases. It's such a bind to be in because all the courts were in the same problem. They, nobody had any money, yeah, and yet you've got to put up this pretense of extravagance all the time. Perhaps if they hadn't done that, they would have had some money. <laughs> Yeah, stop handing out rewards and money for doing absolutely nothing, and there's no such thing as a sinecure, and all of a sudden, hey, it's financially feasible. Hmm. Yeah. We know it's possible because Edward and Thomas did it. Hmm. So other courts could have, I would think. Thomas also went from auditing accounts every year or twice or every two years down to every quarter. He performed so well that Edward would later make, later make him Lord Steward of the household of his son. So he's now Lord Steward of the two most influential people in the country, which is not common. I suppose I, if that person were to die, that whoops. would just cause pandemonium, wouldn't it? If he got the, both. Yeah, except you would both be hoping that he would be teaching somebody on both mm. sides how to continue it. Again, I was thinking, hey, this is insane. He's got so much power. But at the same time, there's much fewer nobles to spread it around. So it may not yeah. have just been he was so fantastic. It could be just that there's nobody yep. else. <laughs> we know from this that Thomas would have been intimate with the royal family, including the children. In order to manage the prince's household, he would have had to have been in close contact with the prince, which also when the child is that young, he would have been in the nursery. So he would have been close with all of the kids. There would have been interactions that were expected because he was also supposed to be training them in the financials of their household. The Lord Steward didn't just take care of all the finances. They were supposed to educate and work with whoever the household owners were. And we know from later, from 
um, Queen Elizabeth of York that she did learn some of her financial thrift through this time period. So it would have been important. It seems in this time, everyone's job is absolutely massive, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we think about Edward Poynings. Yeah. Never Ping stopped. man. Yeah. Never <laughs> stopped. And you think, yeah, if they'd had more people doing it. Yes. But, uh, I suppose I, if you hadn't got the people, you can't, yeah. you've got to make people work so much harder. Yes. Yeah. Some historians have concluded that due to the lack of records for Edward's council, that Edward's household officials would have been more important as the counselors like, to him. He would have been in contact with them more. They would have had more discussions rather than his council. We don't know why there are lack of records. It could have been damaged. They could have been destroyed. They could have never been taken or, as some historians conclude, it just didn't meet very often because Edward didn't think he needed them. Hmm. We so don't what would be know. the difference between what they would be talking about at the council and what he'd be talking about with his, with Thomas or other people like that? Council quite often, from what I could see from the documents that we have from other reigns, is a lot more of what's going to affect the entire country. So hmm. foreign strategy economics where are we going to do treaties with which country what what's favorable what are we willing to do the household was more specific to the lands and england itself and by england itself i mean well one of the easiest ones to think of is elizabeth making everybody wear wool hats on a specific day because that's going to increase the economy yeah or eating fish Yes. So the household would be deciding this for Edward's lands, the lands held by the crown, which would affect the economy of the entire country because the crown held so many lands. Sometimes you see that councillors talking about that, but the other times you see it's just within the household. So it technically should be two different things. Yet there was a lot of foreign policy that was being acted on, but we don't have any records from the council showing that they were the ones making the decision or even that it was discussed. Again, we don't have the records, so we can't tell you why. Yeah. Mm. If this is the truth, and I do hesitate to assume this, we don't have... There was no requirement for them to hold meeting minutes if the council was meeting. And there are a great deal of edicts and decisions that were issued that should have records somewhere we don't have them. So I really don't want to say that he used the household rather than the council. We just don't know. But if it's true, Thomas would then have been even more influential as there were fewer household officials than there were councillors. You'd be listening to five people instead of 20. Hmm. What we can firmly state is that during Edward's beginning, there is not much difference in the members of the council and the members of the household officers, so it may not have been required to have these official council meetings, as your top men in the household are the ones that are in the council anyway. You're so doubling why? up. Yeah. Yes. Partly because there aren't any people. Mm -mm. That kind of close proximity within the household itself could have meant more informal discussions more often than a full council meeting. 
What we do know absolutely from the records we do have is that Edward was in charge. His counsel could make recommendations, but could not and would not and did not ever dictate or pressure him the way the council was doing to Henry before him. If we talk about Henry's counsel, Henry just did what he was told quite often. And the last yes. person who spoke was usually the one that won. Mm, but I suppose we're talking about an entirely different situation with Henry and Edward, aren't we? I mean, yes, we Hen are. Henry was ill for quite a lot of the time, hasn't he? Yes. Yes. And he'd been a child king, so he was used to being told yep. what to do. But if we think about it, Henry VIII was not a child in any way. And at the beginning, his council made his decisions. He just wanted to party. Yeah, well, there are plenty of... It's it's the, it's the ones born to the purple, isn't it? That's um, the problem. Yeah, they have not had to fight for it. Yes. Even with Thomas's responsibilities at court and the king's household, Thomas was required to spend a great deal of time in his lands in the north, suppressing rebellion. Henry the Sixth and his family were still alive. There were still many loyal to them, and the family was in Scotland, not very far away from his lands. Queen Where Mar would they put these podcasts? Oh, I think about all the Rex Factor podcasts, Rexy family. Mm -hmm. Where would it be without rebellions? Because <laughs> all of them <laughs> just talk all the time about rebellions. Yes, we do, actually. <laughs> of course, we're stuck in one specific spot, though. Mm. In time, I mean. So Queen Margaret with the Scots... I keep saying so again. Queen Margaret with the Scots was still harassing the Northern lands, attempting to take them back and make their way south. The Pastons themselves came into danger under the attacks of Margaret and the Scots and wrote about it in their letters. I love the Pastons. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. The people themselves aren't necessarily nice, but having that informal look at what's happening and the sniping and the backbiting and everything, it really does give you a lot more information. And I love it. I absolutely mm. love it. It's also yeah, it's, really it's... sweet when you ask, see somebody asking or one of the wives, Paston wives, asking for a new girdle because she's gotten pregnant and hers oh. doesn't get big enough. So she needs a new one. You're <laughs> like, yay, baby's coming. <laughs> and that baby survived, which is also cool. Hmm. Thomas was joined by Warwick and Lord Montague, Warwick's brother, and their armies to control the northern lands. Would we'll just say for people, if, if people are getting confused about the Wars of the Roses, if you look on our website, we've got yes, it all written out. It's my, still my, confusing, my, but my, <laughs> it's better. In my attempt to get it straight in my head, I wrote it all out. <laughs> yes. Any civil war becomes difficult because people start switching sides and mm. get lost. Louisiana, in 1462, again, Thomas was in a military battle on the side of Edward and Warwick against the Scots. You can see that's now three. Two years later, we can still see the unrest in the north caused by Margaret and the Scots because another skirmish happened. So much so that Parliament was held in the north in York as the lords could not leave the area long enough to attend in London. They knew if they left the area, we were going to get invaded again. Mm. In June of that same year, Margaret and her faction made critical errors that resulted in many of her normal supporters being executed and her and her son having to flee to France. 
They're no longer even safe in Scotland. <laughs> nobody likes them. No. Well, we decided that nobody would like the sun, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, not a nice kid. Henry VI remained in hiding for a year before he was betrayed and captured. It seems like we have finally come to the end. Margaret and her son have no friends in Scotland. They only have yep. France left. The king is captured. That's it. All sorted. That's it. All sorted. Yep. yep. Bish bash bosh. Yes. Edward is now secure on his throne. Hmm. We're I finally done. I can't foresee any problems here. No, not at all. Fast forward three years. <laughs> 1465. Edward announces his secret marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. Whoops. Hmm. I want, I, it would have been fascinating. When people say, I'd like to go back in time and see such and such, I'd like to go back in time and see the moment where Edward told Warwick what he'd done. <sighs> yeah, does his face go beet red or mm. does he just go pale? Does he just, does he rant and rave or just walk away? Thomas, unlike the majority of the rest of the council, didn't balk at this marriage. His opinion seems to be that since they have not married into a foreign country, that there will be less battles back and forth for loyalty to which country. If you remember, they were fighting about whether or not they wanted to be have a treaty with Burgundy or with France, and nobody could come to an agreement. Mm. This kind of ended that. It also means that if you end up with another strong queen, she can't go to the Scots or French and say, I'm your sister. Come mm. help me. So, you yeah, know, actually, it makes a lot of sense to get someone who is effectively a nobody. Yes. And who it didn't seem can call on family. Until, yes. Of course, the family become <laughs> more <Yes>. powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He participated in Elizabeth's coronation and in the tournament to celebrate. He did not, as Warwick and some others did, rail against Edward acting without their knowledge or consent. That seems to be the big thing, the consent part. Mm. The Earl of Warwick basically told Edward that I made you, you should be doing exactly what I say at any and all time. Yeah, Edward did not appreciate that. But he did appreciate Thomas's actions because you see immediately that Thomas was awarded the honors of the tournament and publicly presented with a ruby ring, which was, you're the best of the best, and then additional confidences. So he was added on to a number of other commissions that were group commissions with people. I think Thomas is rather more people savvy than Warwick was. <laughs> yeah, it, you're good at war, but that's it. Mm, just stay out stay, of everything just else. Stay on the battlefield. Yes. After the celebrations, Thomas went to his home in Lancashire. He had not been there uh, almost at all for the last several years. He had responsibilities there to the people he ruled over, so he did have to go. He finally, now he's been the Lord of Lancashire for years, years and mm. years and years since his dad passed away. It's only now, 1465, that he had time to set up his court and council as well as his own household. That's how often he had been in his home. Mm -hmm. He didn't even have a household. 
this was the first time that I understood why a lord had a court and council of their own. For some reason in my head, a household was basically like what we have now. You have a core group and everybody just knows what they're going to do and do it. That doesn't become the case when you own territory. Bridges will fall down and you need to repair them. Where are you going to mm. get the finances? Who's going to hire who? Yeah, I mean, they're effectively little countries, aren't they? Exactly. Mm. And if you don't have a council and you're always with the king, how yeah. does anything get done? And your council still needs to feel important enough so you create your own court for them to get together because when they do make these decisions, they're there for a long period of time. So just having them show up for a meeting and then leave doesn't actually get anything done. Lords have to set up a court where the Lord, his retainers and their wives would come for six months at a time or more. Sometimes the courts just stayed in in uh, session the entire time, usually in times of unrest like now. If you didn't have a court, you wouldn't have a council. If you didn't have a council, nothing in your land would get done. Then you wouldn't have income. You wouldn't be able to pull up men for arms. Like, there's a lot more involved to it, especially when you're like Thomas, who it's been several years and you haven't even seen your own home. Mm. Yeah, somebody's got to be running it. Yes. So while the king doesn't like them to have their own court and council because they're swearing loyalty to that lord and it does issue loyalty concerns... How do you expect your lords to be able to give you what the kingdom needs if they don't have a staff? Mm. So it's an interesting, delicate balance that I never understood before I really got into it with Thomas and how he selected people and why he selected people. The wives of this time period, and it's very specific to the Wars of the Roses, they became more critical because... Now, for the last, we're looking at decade, a bit longer, the men were never around. Mm. They were always fighting, always negotiating, always at court, always at parliament, always doing something else and not being home. This is the first time where a woman went from just managing a single house or household to really becoming almost the lord of the property. They made the decisions with the council. They held the court. They did the work while the husbands were doing everything else. So if a woman could not do that and wasn't trained to that, it would have been a disaster. But mm -hmm. we don't really see them come into their own for this until now. You need times of disasters in order for the women to come to fore. And then when things settle down again, you watch the women sort of lose more and more of those duties and power in their own household. And I suppose if you're thinking of getting married at this point, you look for somebody who you think is going to be able to do the job, not just whether she's got childbearing hips or, yes. you know, it's easy on the eye. Yeah, there is evidence of a couple of marriages that weren't necessarily advantageous for what the woman was bringing to the property, but what she could do. Hmm. Which I thought was fascinating. All of a sudden, there's a part of you that nobody thought was interesting that all of a sudden becomes the most critical thing. And then it disappears again. Mm. Like, if you can't figure out how to run the household, I can hire somebody. But right now, there is nobody to hire. Yeah, it's a bit like after the First World War, when the men came back and said, okay, move over, darling, and we're back. And yes. <laughs> yeah. 
And some people thought, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> World War One and Two, and the women went from working in factories to having to go back to being housewives. Mm. Yeah. So we know that we had, all over the country, smart, reliable men that remained in the area, within the counties, and in the know of all the minutiae of the country and the county in order to keep them running. Without those councils, lands and the people the Lord was responsible for would suffer and his income, influence, and power would decline. So while we think it's going to be a second thought for Thomas, it's actually got to be one of the most important things on his mind. Mm. If he fails in his lands, he will not retain the same power in the king's council, king's household. And trying to think of all that while you're dealing with the Civil War made my mind just get tired. And also the fact that he's, he is a marcher lord makes it doubly important. Yes. In 1468, Eleanor Neville, Thomas's wife and sister to the new Earl of Warwick, died. We don't have much information about her, so I'd like to mention a bit about her here, because this is all we've got. <laughs> She'd been raised in a wealthy household, of course. She would have known the power her father and her brother had, and therefore she could take some of that power. Basically, you got power by proxy. Mm. It is said that the court elegance of Thomas's court was due entirely to her efforts. Um, the historian Elaine says that the household was elegant, economic, while being charming and generous. It's really tough balance in wartime footing in a marcher area. Where was she then? Was she, she wasn't at court with her, no. with Thomas. She was back in Lancashire? or She was all over the place. Just yeah. like every other time of the year, no matter if there's a civil war or not, she would have had to travel from holding to holding to ensure that the holdings were running smoothly. There was a council for basically each holding, and then one council that sort of ran the whole thing overarching, sending out the messages to the other counties. So she would have spent time in Man. She would have spent time in Lancashire and in Knowlesley, which I really should have looked up where that was. <laughs> I saw a picture of it, but yeah. No, it's not ringing any bells with me. But being able to keep, during a wartime footing, keep a court that was considered charming, generous, economic, and elegant mm. seems quite, quite, I don't know difficult. Mm. She had many children. George, the eldest, was a boy. They also had five more boys and four girls. Ten Blimey. children in all. Blimey. She had her hands full. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm running, running the, the, the family firm as well. Yeah. And apparently mm. she was very hands-on with the kids, unlike some noblewomen. That well, it was the times you weren't supposed to be deeply involved in your children when you were a noble woman. Mm. They were supposed to go to a nursery house that was often a different house than you lived in, and they had their own governesses and nurses. That must have been heartrending. Yeah. The relationships in this family appear to have been ones of affection and respect. And whenever they did go to man, because he did have to go to man for their parliament, which was at least once a year, she was always with them and so were the children. All right. So while he didn't spend any time in Lancashire, if he wasn't battling, then, yeah, not very often did they get to spend time together from what I could find. Thomas's 
Thomas and his wife were very economical in their management of their income. We know that they made over 500 pounds a year for the Isle of Man, but in one year's accounts, they only spent 302 pounds in all the upkeep and maintenance. Hmm. So they were making a profit, which isn't hmm. usual. Most people spend no. more than they made. The comments of Eleanor's, his wife's economy, made me believe that she, if she managed this one territory that well, and her, her signature is on a lot of it because Thomas isn't around, she would have been similarly responsible in all the others as well. We don't have detailed records for those, but you can imagine it would be the same across the board. You wouldn't spend recklessly over here and mm. save and be financially smart over here. It, most people are consistent in their behavior. She would have had to see to the household operations, and I mean all the operations. And when we talk about household operation, that also means how many cows do we have? How many are we breeding this year? When are we going to sell those cows? Do we have enough chickens to make it through the winter? It is not just, oh, here's the house. I need to keep it clean. Mm. Or, you know, we need more linens. It's a lot more involved than what we think of as a household. The household in and and you've got a huge staff to, you need to yes. look after and pay and... And get education for if they're the young kids yeah. or pages that are in your home. And we mm -hmm. do know that a lot of nobles, when Thomas got to this point, were sending their children to be educated in his household because of yeah, his power. Yeah, I was going to say all the boards and like that, yeah. Yes, and we do know that Eleanor was quite involved in that, ensuring they got a specific type of education, which again, not all noble women were willing to do. So it's a very unique couple in the records. I'm assuming there are others like this, but there's we just don't have a lot of household records. They weren't considered important enough for people to keep. I do find that interesting. What we're keeping now or what we're consigning to history now is what we think is important. Yes. But Oops. other people are going to have questions that we aren't leaving the answers to. Mm, yeah, have you talked? You know, you've listened to historians; they love rummaging about in yeah, me too. Household, <laughs> yeah, household accounts, and you know, just stuff stuff from the rubbish tip, really, isn't it? Yes, it's... and there is an archaeology called garbology where you're going through <laughs> rubbish piles, and some of the details and fashion that you can find in there, changes in the types of crockery that came about. Mm. Where we got our stuff, we go from wooden plates and spoons to ceramic as ceramic became less expensive, and then back to woodworking as we lost treaties. And it's really neat how those things come together. And you wouldn't find those if they hadn't had a specific rubbish pile that they just dumped everything in and it slowly got buried. Mm. It's really cool. Mm. The other thing that we wanted to talk about was in the household operations, and this one I really liked you would have to constantly adjust provisioning for the household for guests. For when Thomas came home with all of his retainers, all of a sudden you have double the number of people. How long are they staying? Yeah. It's a civil war. We don't know. They may be here for a week. They may be here for two days. They could actually have a break and be here for a couple of months. How would you constantly be able to adjust the provisioning? And it sounds really simple. They don't have refrigeration. No, and they'd be bringing, they'd be providing everything for themselves on site. It's yes. not as if you pop out and get 
get some extras. Yes, which is one of the reasons why they did have to move if it was a large household. They exhaust the supplies at one household or one house and have to move to the next where the supplies hadn't been touched yet. Mm. Yeah, it, it's really a fascinating way of living that we don't do anymore. And we almost lose some of the excitement, I think, because now we have food that's mostly around throughout the year, whereas then it was all very seasonal what you could eat. So you'd be excited yeah. looking Imagine forward that to first, that first strawberry. Or... Yeah. yeah. The very first orange. Mm. Yeah. All of a sudden you have fresh meat again and you're not eating salted beef. Yeah. It would be a constant shifting juggling act. She would have been intimately involved in her children's education, which isn't normal, but we know that she was. She would have also been in charge of alms for the poor in their lands, as well as arranging for care for the sick and injured. She's in the marcher lands. That's a lot of injured people. Hmm. And the poor in the marcher lands were actually more than in the rest of the country because of the raids. People come in, burn your house down, take all your goods. You're all of a sudden poor. Mm. One of the things I do like about the way this worked was her finding the resources to rebuild for those people. And the lords had to. Peasants couldn't afford to just rebuild their own house if it got eradicated or buy another cow because it was stolen. The marcher lords had a much more intimate relationship with the people on their land in order to keep their land successful. So it would have been more costly to be a marcher lord than it would have been anywhere else. Mm, it's a yes. very different way of living. Yeah, it's you've fairly drawn the short straw, really, haven't you, if you get that bit of land? Yes. But at the same time, the amount of power that you wield and your influence on the court was bigger because you have the ability to just let somebody in. Yep. Yeah. It's a trade-off. It's definitely a trade-off. We do know that Eleanor did spend quite a bit of time at court, sporadically though. Instead of being like other women that we see in, say, Elizabeth's court or Henry Tudor's court, or should say Elizabeth of York's court, where the women would come and stay for years as a servant... Eleanor, Thomas's wife, didn't. She didn't have time. So I she would say, yeah. She would come for visits, yes. You see two weeks here or three weeks there, but never, never months on end. She was way too busy, way too involved. And that's another reason why we know she was so involved in their land holdings, is because she didn't have the opportunity to stay with the court. The queen was apparently very affectionate with her. So she would have been wanted to be there from what mm. we can see. It's just she had too much power to be able to do it, which, again, isn't the norm. Women quite often spent like years with their husbands. The only time they would leave was when they had to go in for childbirth. Mm. Then they'd give up their kids to the nursery and come back. You see that with a lot of the women that were serving the queens at this time, but Eleanor wasn't one of those. I like it when we come across these anomalies to show that women weren't just... Well, I was just thinking, she sounds like a very strong character, and maybe Thomas is attracted to very strong characters. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> he does pick them very hmm. strong. Well, no, his father picked Eleanor. He agreed to Margaret Beaufort. 
I was going to say, didn't Margaret pick him? It seems to be more mutually exclusive than what I expected or mutually agreed upon. Later, Edward won the crown and fully became King Edward IV. And through a series of possibly poor choices by Edward, or you could just say choices that went against Warwick for power, Warwick, who was Thomas's brother-in-law, rebelled against Edward IV. So now we have a new rebellion. Thomas sided with Edward. However, later that year, when Warwick re-entered England and restored Henry VI in the adeption, Thomas was in his party entering London. Yeah, I think this was another of I think this is another of those you you do this, I'll do that. I will be all right. Yeah, I didn't bring in William in this point. Mm. <laughs> You're talking about him. <laughs> Thomas again received even more lands, titles and money and positions in government from Warwick. It's just ridiculous. He just keeps adding to what he's got every time there's a changeover. Why is Warwick in the position to hand over? Because that was part of his agreement with Henry VI. Henry can't mm. rule. Warwick and Margaret had made that stupid makeup thing. Would oh, be good. Yes, to yes get when it. he had to stay on his knees for quarter of an hour. Yes. <laughs> because a majority of the dealings between the monarch and his nobles were not written down in court rolls right now. Or if they were, they've been lost. It's impossible to say what was said to keep Thomas in favor while walking that very fine line. He had been so prominent in Edward's court. How could you say that he was not a Yorkist? We also don't know why Thomas all of a sudden changed his allegiance. We've lost that part of it. He was firmly in Edward's court and he was staying with King Edward when... Warwick initially did the rebellion. It's just all of a sudden when Warwick enters London with Henry, the Thomas is there. It, it was. I little... suppose it makes more sense because Thomas and William were Team Edward. But William, as far as I know, has no connection with the Nevilles, but Thomas does. So it makes oh. more sense for William to go on to the... Lancastrian side. William to stay with Edward and Thomas to go to Neville... Because he's got the links. Right. So William stays with the Yorkist because Thomas is married to the Nevilles who are now supporting Lancastrians. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What is interesting is that how he actually physically refused to join the rebellion and then joined him again later in the same year. How do you, how do you come back from that too? I don't know. There's. I wish we had more of the letters or if they were verbal agreements, somebody would have written it down because I'd mm. like to know how you get that person to trust you after you've already said absolutely not. Yeah, I think we, I think this is why it's all verbal, isn't it? Yeah. I was just thinking about um, just prior to Bosworth when William meets Henry Tudor. Oh, There's no spoilers. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's no records. It's all verbal, frustratingly right. verbal. No, nobody knows what they said. So it's yeah. yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Thomas continued to support the Lancastrians and was on Henry the Sixth side in the Battle of Northampton in 1460. And then somehow he managed to be forgiven by the Yorkists and was placed on Henry the Sixth Council by the Yorkists after the Yorkists reformed it again. We're going backwards in time. Just 
I just wanted to show that he's bouncing back and forth. So he's supporting the Lancastrians, but he's on the Yorkist court. He's now supporting the Yorkist court, but he shows up coming into London on the Lancastrian side. And there's such a gap in the middle. We have no idea what's going on. At the same time, those two are so different. At the beginning, the Yorkists just wanted to manage the court and manage the country to bring it back from the brink of bankruptcy. And then later they take it over. But why? It's got wider and wider, isn't it? Yeah. So why does he stick with the Lancastrians when they're just trying to keep Henry on the throne and manage the finances? And then when the Yorkists decide, okay, we need to get rid of Henry, you're going to switch over to the Yorkist side? You're going for the more extreme. Again, it's all verbal. Why? Why? Yeah. If the Queen had not been so forceful in her reliance on the Duke of Somerset and ticked off every Yorkist there were, and had just let the Yorkists run the council because they were still in charge, would the War of the Roses have ever happened? Mm, I think Somerset had a lot to answer for. He was quite a a prickly character, wasn't he? And he just wouldn't I think let it's go. one of these yeah, I think it's one of these things where um personality counts for quite a lot. Yeah. Throughout the instability of the government, Thomas managed to accrue greater lands, holdings, positions, and wealth. Every time. Not losing stuff. Just like every other great man at the time, the more land you owned, the more money and men you could draw from that land, the more the king needed you, the more power you received from the king to keep you on his side. Thomas, of course, was well aware of this and made obtaining more land one of the focuses of his entire life. He was also aware that in the turmoil, if his lands were closer together or adjoined each other, they were easier to control and, more importantly, to defend. Mm. So I found here showing that he not only didn't accept lands, he specified which lands he would accept. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine. You can imagine that makes a lot of sense. You want one big buffer, don't you? You don't want to be rushing about trying to protect stuff all over ah, the place. Yeah. So this leads me to an interesting aside. Okay, this is a rabbit hole, mm. but okay. it was really interesting to me, and I want to share it. I learned during the research of Thomas, and I was struck by the fact that he rejected some lands and would accept others in lieu which I didn't know you could do. And all of those lands that he was obtaining were around the lands he already held. So then I started looking at maps on how much his lands were farther away. And then you can find a few maps where it shows holdings of major, like the Earl of Warwick shows where his land holdings are. Only when it's mm -hmm. critical and people start talking about the Words of the Roses and they're like, this is way the men came from different areas. For some reason, I had mistakenly believed that having lands in widely disparate parts of England was part of the deliberate land distribution so the wealthy could go on progress to different areas of England, avoid disease, avoid running out of supplies, and just to show themselves off, really. I assume it's because the, the monarch isn't going to want them to have huge slabs of 
Exactly. Of land that they are going to become too overpowerful in one spot. Yes, I was so wrong. Before 1066, that was the case. People had large chunks of land in one spot. The Norman Conquest come, and William the Conqueror shows up and says, absolutely not. He hmm. attempted for a few years to maintain the English aristocracy with those big land holdings. But to rule as the English had ruled with only a small part, small part of lands given to his own man from the lands of the aristocracy that had fought against him failed. It wasn't feasible. So he began to systematically remove the English aristocracy and replace them. He did not have ever give them lands wholesale the way it was taken. So I took this huge chunk of land from a baron. I'm splitting it up and giving it to multiple people. Mm. And then they'll get lands from another area split up and given to multiple people. And the reason why is because of France and Normandy. One of the most difficult problems that William and the French kings faced is the aristocracy. In France, lords would hold huge areas of concentrated land. This provided them a source of manpower that was also specifically loyal to them and mm -hmm. vastly larger than what you can get in England. It was also in a concentrated area, which means it's easier to defend. You don't have to travel as far to get to it. And presumably that's why France is split into Brittany and Aquitaine. Yes, huge sections mm. of countries that in themselves become almost their own country within Little a countries. country. Yeah. Yes. And I'm sure Battle Royale will cover this in more detail when they get to this time period. But William understood as the Duke of Normandy, which technically was France, that he was going to have to spend a great deal of time in battles with his subordinates in England if he let them set up the exact same way. This mm -hmm. is the first time that England starts getting split up to reduce the baron's power. So in England, he split up the land holdings that he provided to the lords who supported him and then scattered those lands all over England. So they had interests in keeping each part of the country upheld but also couldn't pull that much. And the loyalty would drop because you're not always there. You're not personally interacting with any of these people. They don't see mm. you on a regular basis. And it worked really well. Also, if they decided to rebel, they'd have to get their troops from several areas. And like we mentioned earlier, it's a lot easier to pick off these little things. So civil war was going to be less possible. But the Stanley lands... But the Stanley lands are now yes. becoming more and more concentrated, mm. deliberately. The policy of keeping the Lord's lands separated by long distances was not only maintained by subsequent queens, but also by the Lords themselves, which Thomas is about by to run into. Hang on. You said by subsequent queens. Kings. Sorry. Subsequent <laughs> kings. Subsequent kings. So... William started it, and then as lords disappeared or lands were attainted, the lands were split up more and more and more until you get to the maps that we have during our current time period, where they've got lands all over the place and not one big area. Mm. The lords themselves wanted to prevent each other from becoming more powerful than themselves. So they're not going to fight this? Yes. And they're going to fight on the side of the king of preventing him from giving a big chunk of area to one person because that person now has more power than I do. So we're yeah. at a crab bucket. 
It's going to be good for you, but it's not really going to be good for me. So instead of me wishing and trying to join you there, I'm just going to drag you back and not let you have it. Thomas understood this weakness better than most. And I think that's possibly because of his work in the marches. His marcher lands were constantly under attack. But he couldn't rely on his neighbors in the marcher lands with the lands adjoining him to come help him if he was the one being invaded and not their lands. Unless he was the neighbor in the marcher land. Yeah. <laughs> so his argument at this time to get these lands was the fact that it would help him defend the marches as well as increase his ability to respond to dangers when Margaret or somebody came in through Scotland. So I'm going to be able to defend the kingdom better, but if you don't give me these lands, we are at risk for this. So basically saying we're in trouble. When his father died in 1459, Thomas immediately received the Latham and Knowlesley Manors, the Tower at Liverpool, the Isle of Man. But even that was a struggle. As the crown kept getting passed back and forth, other people claimed those territories. At this time, we'll find a lot where people didn't have anything in writing saying why they got it or when mm -hmm. they got it. So you have a lot of the litigation saying this house is mine or this area of land is mine. And it would have to go to courts every single time because nothing was in writing. Thomas was successful in keeping those lands, but also melding the new acquisitions of his land holdings that surrounded each other with particular attention to Lancashire and Cheshire, as these were the lands under most threat. He was able to tell the king that if we combine them, I have more to pull, I have a better response time, it's going to be better for the king, going to be better for the kingdom. And also, it probably won't mean much to people who don't live in the country or haven't looked at the map. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to end this topic here and just let you know that the increase of land holdings meant that there was a huge increase in power as well as administration. And we see more payments for estate stewards, bailiffs, and reeves, as well as supplies for men-at-arms. So we can tell you that later on, it's this power, this wealth, this concentration of everything in Lancashire and in the north that allows him to get away with a few things, including the marriage to Margaret Beaufort. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I say his life was interesting for us, I really can provide a record of the change from medieval life to a more modern kingdom, which is cool. Mm. When Thomas's father was the lord of lands, tenants were recorded as providing military service and labor services for their rent, just as been done for centuries. So part of it was you providing horses, chickens, whatever, you mm. worked on the Lord's lands. By the end of Thomas's life, this is almost completely gone. None of that was required. Now the tenants paid in money and goods that could be sold for money. We're talking about cloth, wool, tapestries, candles. Things that could be paid easily, not foodstuffs. Oh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This worked better for the Lord. First, he got cash that he could readily use for whatever was required. He didn't have to then sell the goods provided to him that were on the hoof, which meant actually walking geese all the way down to London to sell yeah. them. There wasn't that delay. You could just put them on a cart and off you go real quick. He was able to keep the lands farmed and working in his territories because the men weren't being taken away. 
This prevented economic depressions and food shortages. You find that the country's economy becomes more balanced in relation to warfare. Less men are leaving. So the depressions that you see for economy after this, more often than not, are disease or disasters, not necessarily war. He could now also pay for soldiers who were actually trained and armed rather than relying on farhands, who may never have been in battle and probably just stood there freezing. I would freeze. Yes. <laughs> oh, God, I'm not moving. So it seems like a win for the lords. I'm not sure how it felt for the actual tenants, how you would get yes, that money. Yes, suddenly in. you're forced into a position of having to learn to make cloth. and yes. It's well, I suppose it's sort of sort of thing that people people are doing now. Farmers are having to diversify, aren't they now? So yes, I suppose it's much much for muchness. Yes, and it looks like they got fewer days off. Part of the agreement before was that they would work these lands for so long, these lands for so long, and then you got these many days off. But when you're having to provide goods, you don't necessarily get a day off just because it's in the contract. No, and especially if it's you're making it within your own home, you're yeah. going to keep keep going, aren't you? Yeah. Thomas was also a very smart and good lord to his tenants, and his wife was fantastic. They're in the Marcherlands. They kept the rents low. I can't find any evidence of him ever raising the tenants' rent. Ever. And they were lower than in surrounding lands. I'm in the same opinion of the multiple historians that I was reading. Lancashire needed to be defended from the raids. It was an incredibly dangerous place to live, and people by now were not tied to the land by serfdom or the holdings or contracts, so they You're could leave. You're go somewhere safer, aren't you? Yes. Mm. So if you raise that rent, nobody's showing up, and you're already having attrition from the attacks. People are getting killed. And the population had already taken a hit from the diseases you're just constantly losing people. So you have to make it incredibly well worth it for people to come to farm your lands, to work for you, to provide this income. And how do you do that? You have to make it low income. But at mm -hmm. the same time, if you're a jerk, they're still not coming. Or they'll come to suck over they can't stand you and they'll leave. So by being a good lord, they actually increase the number of people that are coming. So all that care, alms for the par, and ensuring people who are sick were taken care of that his wife did, turned out to be critical in maintaining the population in his areas. And he was probably one of the most successful landholders that did this in this time period, which says something for him. Kindness, yes. fairness. He does seem to be able to see the larger picture as well, doesn't he? I mean, both yes. in his household thing and working with Edward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he must have been invaluable. I admit, I've been impressive. Mm. Thomas also kept retainers. They're a type of tenant that did provide military service, but they were trained as soldiers and held attendance on their lord. So they would travel with him to wherever he was going. And then if he needed to send messengers where it was dangerous, a retainer would go instead of just a messenger. Somebody could defend themselves. This never stopped. These were quite often younger sons of wealthy or moderately wealthy upper-class men. And because of Thomas's power, he actually had the ability to draw in better and more of these younger sons. 
Before Henry VII takes control, these retainers would wear their lord's livery, colors and badges, that were provided by their lord. They would also swear an oath of allegiance to the lord, not to the king. Not to the king. Not to the king. So this is another medieval tradition that's still going up until Henry VII's time. Their loyalty to the king would be much less than their loyalty to their direct lord that they were in company with. And it's hard to be loyal to a man that you never interact with. Mm, You'll probably never see. Exactly. And we can see that in all the retainers that fought against the rule of Henry Henry VI, they followed their lord because their lord made that decision. After Henry VII, when you see the arguments, they're not split amongst the lords because the retainers aren't 100% loyal to their lords. They still feel that loyalty and probably the possibility that they're going to lose their jobs, Mm. but it's less of a hold and less of a threat to the king. The retainers at this point were retainers for life. You didn't move around like you do later. The Lord was also required to protect them in legal matters, and we can see from several records that Thomas actively came to the retainers' defense in land disputes. Thomas even arranged for one of his retainers, Thomas Pilkington, knighted by the king, which isn't a normal thing to do. Hmm. I cannot say if this was extraordinary, but a lot of people or a lot of historians have noted of noted it as evidence of Thomas's largesse to his retainers and his friendship with them. Which doesn't seem to be a common thing either. Mm, he's not a complete automaton. He's uh... No. He's somewhat nice in some places. Mm. Thomas was well regarded by both by men both higher in status and lower in status to him, which is a tricky thing to do. He was appointed executor to Lord Berkeley, a man higher in rank than him, while men below him requested his justice and arbitration in matters, even by men outside of his area of authority, which was a no-no. If you were struggling, you were supposed to go directly to your lord. These men were going outside of their lord directly to Thomas because it was felt that he was going to be more fair. Because they couldn't trust their own lord. Yes. But to be trusted by people outside of your area of authority also tells you what kind of things were being said by the people he did retain. Hmm. Would you trust somebody that somebody was constantly bad-mouthing? No, I don't think so. We have mentioned before that the Tudors were very litigious, and I am thankful for that now. (laughs) It is an amazingly awesome resource. Yes. The court documents have fared better than church documents at this time, especially after the the dissolution. And some of the information you get are so cool. Like all prominent men, Thomas arranged marriages that were advantageous to his family as a whole. What's interesting is he didn't always go with nobility for those. All right. Which he should have now that he was an earl. Hmm. His son George, he married to Joan Strange. She is the heiress of Lord Strange. Joan was also the daughter of Jaquetta Woodville. Uh Ah. Linking into the royal family. Hmm. And that was a massive prize for the Stanleys. They were now physically related to the royal family, which gave them more of... It's not authority, just... You're expected to be listened to more if you're related to the family. Hmm. Thomas didn't, like I said, only arrange marriages above his stations, but also below his station if it meant more land and power for the family. He married one of his daughters to Sir John Savage, a knight, not a noble. 
But the land that came into the family increased to centralized land holdings, as well as creating a firm, strong supporter in the turmoil that was coming, even though he didn't know. This man even fought for Thomas in the Battle of Bosworth. Savage did. Savage did, yes. Ah. Hmm. Yeah, well, His... Yes, I know. I've been reading about him after Bosworth, so yes, it's quite interesting. <laughs> we'll come to that when we get to William. Okay. We'll be talking more about Savage? Hmm. Oh, I didn't realize he was going to be that prominent. Not prominent, but, um, yeah. Okay. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Edward, his son Edward, was married to Anne Harrington, and he married his nephew by his sister Elizabeth Harrington. So these are both heiresses in the lands of northern Lancashire. So he has married one of his nephews to one of them and his son to another. Bringing them so farther he's into the still family. Marrying, marrying to get that big slab of land. Yes, including his younger siblings' children. He's arranging their marriages, not just his own. Thomas's own marriages bought in wealth. Both Eleanor and later Margaret Beaufort were extremely wealthy heiresses and well dowered. Thomas managed through all of these clever dealings and marriages to gain enough power to become the chief steward of the Duchy of Lancashire, which I don't mean his own lands. He's now overarching in control of others' lands as well, hmm. which I can't find anybody else at this specific time period that managed to get that much control that they could even tell their neighbors what to do. Yeah, I read that they were, uh, the Stanleys were second only to the Howards in... In the north, yes. Yes. If, I know to some people that are listening, it doesn't sound impressive, but we really want to hammer this point home. We have to understand that the Duchy of Lancashire is a holding of the king. It is separate from the crown lands and held privately by the person of the king. It automatically goes to that person. The historian Elaine puts it, it's the king's private treasury, his storehouse of money, men, and arms. So it's End quote. The, ki the king as a man rather than as a king. Yes. So when he goes to parliament for something, parliament can't touch that land. They can have say in all the other islands that the crown holds, but the crown doesn't hold Lancashire. Hmm. It's very personal. So the king could also rely on in times of triples or difficulties for providing funds when Parliament says, no, I'm not going to. Hmm. It can also be a safe haven where they can go where Parliament can't touch them. It's critical that this land be well managed. Thomas remained a steward and receiver for the duchy from 1461 to 1504 through more than one king. Hmm. That's a feat when each king took over the other violently. Yeah. How's he finding time for all this? I don't know. I think they don't sleep. Oh. Thomas was also in a unique position of being a steward in the king's household, on the king's council, intimate with the king's needs, so he knew exactly what that king was going to need from the Duchy of Lancashire. He could ensure a ready supply for those needs from the private holding so much faster because he was so intimate with the king. It mm. wouldn't be, I need to send this steward and this steward, because it was usually multiple stewards of different areas of Lancashire. 
in one go. You wouldn't be sending messengers to tons of people and waiting for a response. It really helped out Tom or Edward. And to show the importance of this position in the duchy, we can look at those who held it previously to Thomas, the Earl of Warwick, hmm. the future Richard III. The king's own brother, Thomas, was put in charge of it instead. He, Richard was taken off and Thomas was put in place. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew why it was taken from Richard and given to Thomas, but I don't. The power Well, the we Duchy know that both Richard and the Duke of Clarence didn't like stuff being taken away, did no. they? No. No. So maybe grudges were held? I don't know. The power in the duchy wasn't only with Thomas, though. His two sons held high offices in it, as did his son-in-law, John Savage, and his brother-in-law, Richard Molyneux, and his nephew, another Richard Molyneux. Instead of it being placed with multiple people from multiple families, he's managed to consolidate the total power in his own family, who are already supposed to be following his direction. Mm. It, it seems almost like Thomas is kind of setting himself up to take on the crown. That's what it started feeling like. I was just about to say, is, what is Edward thinking at this point? Is he, is he quaking in his boots? Is he worried about what's going on? Doesn't seem to be. They're constantly together, hunting, dicing, gambling. It seems like complete and utter trust. Especially if Stanley's got this link with the, um, Edward I. Yes. Hmm. He was also then made chief steward of the North Parts. The person to be given this title and role, the first person to be given this title and role, he was essentially the king's representative for the North. That meant if he could not contact the king, he had the right to make decisions for the king in the North. Insane. Hmm. He would settle disputes, boundary litigations, repair defenses that were held by the crown, hold courts of the baron for the king, sell wards and marriages. All of the actions that used to go through the king for the northern territories now went through Thomas specifically on top of the rest of his duties. So what was Richard doing at this point? Because I thought Richard had control over the north. It was taken from him. Like I said, I don't know why. All of it. Well, if I remember correctly, he was. this was the point when George was gotten rid of. And George, as an elder brother, had more important duties, so Richard was moved. Right. So it might have seemed like I'm being promoted, so Thomas had to be promoted. It wasn't actually I'm kicking mm. you off of something and you're being demoted. But I didn't go too far into it. I just know that this is when George is gone. Or going. Basically, Thomas had risen to ultimate power in the area, save for the king. Mm. Which is surprising right after a civil war. One thing that I think we do have to take into account that I will not provide details of in this episode is that William Stanley, your next victim, mm -hmm. was the younger brother of Thomas. I won't get into any of the position and powers that William held at this time. It was still expected that William would support his elder brother. So... Thomas was now the new head of the family. The head was always the eldest male in the family. This meant that any power and holdings that William controlled, in theory, were accessible to Thomas. Mm. This made the family extremely powerful as an ally or as an enemy. So they would present a united force, I suppose, yes. against anything. 
Yes. And like I said before, anytime a decision was made, the messages seemed to be going back and forth. So I think mm. they worked more as a partnership than one person dictating. I've seen other families where the eldest dictated and the younger just had to do what they said. Or the youngest rebelled and went against the eldest. Yes. Mm. Edward Seymour and Thomas Seymour are a good example of that. Mm. Yeah. With Thomas was supposed to be doing what he was told, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. A few historians point to all this individual power and, ooh, I forgot to make a mention of that. Thomas's family were not only powerful in the north, but they also had several holdings in Wales. Mm, well, that makes sense. And the king's yes, laws... Yes, because when Henry came up through Wales, he actually went through Stanley country, didn't he? Mm-hmm. The king's laws don't extend there. A marcher lord to Wales held his lands as an absolute ruler. You can point to all of this individual power in Wales and the north as the reason that Thomas was able to play both sides. He had too much power for the monarch to be able to hold a grudge. And Thomas was a man to encourage in loyalty, not one you want to alienate. Mm. If you alienate him, all of a sudden you had somebody very powerful with a lot of resources that could come at you. And somewhat someone who has flip-flopped somewhat throughout his career. And Yes. Will he stay with you? Yes. If he doesn't want to. And Thomas was able to use both his power and his family to split the difference between the enemies, it seems like. Mm. He could sit quiet and not quite help the person currently in power until the very last when he saw who would win, while sending one of his brothers to support the opposite side to hedge the family's bets and the power and wealth that he had accrued would keep him out of trouble or his brothers out of trouble when the dice landed each time. Mm. And each time to keep him loyal, the new king would then grant Thomas even more power and wealth. Because now you're trying to sweeten the deal to keep him loyal to you. Thomas managed to spend time in both camps, and not once did I see that he was punished. Was he just too powerful to punish now? I don't know. I don't know. But he even publicly joined Warwick and the king's brother Clarence against Edward. And when Richard ratted him out, he claimed he was too afraid to face two powerful men by himself. So he said the only reason he joined was because I didn't quite have enough men and I'd be in trouble. Mm. If you look through the chronicles and the Paston letters, Thomas's actions were spun that he resisted the two by not actively joining them and then refusing, but keeping the safety of his lands for the king. He's got the spiel, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> but revisionists have looked at the records and they seem to believe that at this time Thomas had intended to betray Edward. Edward, after all, this time period specifically, was starting to put his younger brother Richard in the positions held by Warwick and placing Richard's power above Thomas in Wales. Thomas got the power in the north, but now Richard is getting more power in Wales. Oh, right. I didn't know he had a Welsh link. Neither did I. While not directly removing him from power, he was removing Warwick, Thomas's brother-in-law, and placing Richard, who was not a fan of Thomas, mm. in charge, which puts Thomas in jeopardy. Yeah, he's losing ground now, isn't he? Yes. Warwick seems to have been the only man in power who was willing to 
exclude Thomas from the council, even though they had come to his, he'd come to his side and helped him evict Edward. So now Edward's out. Warwick and Clarence are in the country. Mm. Unfortunately, this is a fatal flaw in Warwick's ability to hold power for long. Thomas got ticked off. This is the first time you've said no. First time he's not been allowed on council. First time that he's not going to give me any lands or bonuses. And when Warwick and Clarence had to fight against Edward when Edward returned to the country, he stayed out of it, sort of. Instead, he went sieging Hornby Castle that he wanted to own. So he just took all of his Lancastrian archers and went elsewhere. Hmm. On a little spree of his own. Yes. This meant that Thomas had out and out public, publicly betrayed Edward by going to Warwick and Clarence's side when they came in. But then out and out betrayed Warwick and Clarence when Edward came back. It seems odd that people forgive, forgive, them, forgive him for siding with the other person as long yeah. as they then dump the other person yeah totally confusing mm. but you should just think don't trust him at all i mean it's <laughs> the more people he 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 turns on the less trustworthy he is but that doesn't seem yeah. to be how they look at it no i mean edward took him back Gave him the wardships of the heirs of Hornby Castle, the one he just wanted. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, in turn, married them to his own children so that that castle would then end up in his household. Mm. The only thing that comes out as a positive here for the two female heirs is that by Thomas marrying them to his sons, they actually managed to remain holding their possessions. Quite often when there was a wardship, the women would lose lose the possessions entirely because the other person was mismanaged them so badly that there was nothing left when they did get married. And not just the women as well. Any ward. Yes. The other contestant in the ownership of the land and castle would have disinherited the women outright. They already said so. So they went from being possibly paupers to remaining high up in the nobility and now becoming part of this incredibly powerful family. I just mm. hope it was happy marriages. Mm. So the dice had finally fallen. Warwick's gone. Edward's there. No Henry. No Edward, son of Henry. No Margaret. Thomas came out on top with even more positions, powers, and lands from Edward. He's one of the very few that played both sides and still managed to come out on top all the way through. I know. It's uncanny, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and we think it's just political intrigue that he's doing well at. We know that he was successful militarily as well. He accompanied Edward as in his invasion of France in 1475. Thomas provided military personnel as well as his own arm. He fought, he physically fought in any of the battles he jumped into. When he jumped into them. <laughs> yeah. If he jumped into them. The forces he provided included the famous archers that we mentioned, as well as 40 men-at-arms. Those are well-trained, kind of like knights, but usually more versatile. We don't have much in the way of mentions of his personal actions, but we know he was successful enough to retain the king's favor and trust, which says something in itself in a battle. In this invasion, we also get to see Thomas as 007, James Bond. Ooh. 
Yeah. When the English discovered that the Burgundians would not provide the promised armies, they realized they could not win if they faced the French alone. They had planned based on the combined force of Burgundy and England going against the French. If the Burgundian force had not told them they would help, Edward would have either not invaded or invaded with the number of men he actually required to win. Mm. Now they're screwed. Edward turned to Thomas. Thomas became a secret agent. He approached the French king for a truce in return for a payment to the English. Between Thomas and the French king's nobles being captured, then released, so they were actually pretending to be arrested All right, and then okay. released on their own recognizance over and over and over again, they were able to come to an agreement that saved face on both sides. The French prince, the Dauphin, was going to marry Elizabeth of York. The little one. Okay. Edward's oldest daughter. And the French would pay 75,000 crowns annually, which is massive when your kingdom is bankrupt. Mm. Stanley received a very nice pension from the French king for this service. Mm. We're now thinking the crown has been settled. Family has been provisioned for the future. All your family's married off. Thomas could now think of himself. He doesn't have a wife. Oh, right. It's... Time for a new bride. Mm. Eleanor has passed away. He was ambitious, and there was only one woman in the kingdom who was one of the wealthiest heiresses. Well, by now, the wealthiest heiress had more lands and wealth than anyone else, including himself. Oh, really? Goodness. Yes. Well, she came with her dower lands, right? Mm. She was an heiress. But then when she married her husband, her two previous husbands, and they passed away, she gained dower lands from them as well. She's a bit of a Bess of Hardwick, isn't she, I think? Yes, yes. she is. <laughs> Just keeps getting more and more wealthy. Mm. And my next line, like Bess of Hardwick. <laughs> <laughs> Each time Margaret Beaufort married, she ended up with more wealth and lands. Also, she only had one heir who was in exile, unlikely to return. Child death rates were high. Mm -hmm. This meant that if he married her and she passed away, since Harriet Henry was in exile, all those lands went to his family. Mm. He wouldn't have lost a single thing. No, she seems like a good prospect. Yes. This marriage also hedges his bets in politics. Yes, he was in the Yorkist Council. But he was marrying the mother of one of the few Lancastrians left alive. There are still Yorkists and Lancastrians. We all seem to think that the War of the Roses ended when Edward IV finally became king at the end. No, I think, well, Battle of Stoke is meant to be the last one, isn't it? And that's well yes. into Henry VII's reign. Yes, but we still seem to think of Henry VII's reign. If you ask people, mm. they think it's done by then. Like, once Henry had it, they don't really think of the rebellions that happened during that time as people actually getting the crown. But there are still a huge Lancastrian faction with many people part of it. So I can't imagine he could at this time in 1482 have an idea that Edward's very large family wouldn't maintain the throne. Edward has two sons and a brother. Mm -hmm. But if anyone did see this possibility based on his past behaviors and tactics, I could think Thomas might have been one to realize that it could still swap. Hmm. The marriage could not have been for lust. 
You know how Margaret declared her celibacy when mm-hmm. Henry took the crown? Turns out that's written in their contract. <laughs> so he knew he wasn't getting anything right from the beginning. It's in the arrangement negotiations for the marriage. Well, they they make other arrangements, don't they? Yes, they do. Unless you're Henry the Seventh. Yeah, I also found it interesting that I didn't find the marriage contract then. I found it now through Thomas. Oh, right. So back then, when we did her, I said that when Henry became king, he she announced her celibacy. And what was Thomas going to do? He's going to tell the king that, no, I don't like your mom not sleeping with me. But it turns out it was done before they got married. So she announced it publicly then, but it had always been in the contract. The marriage was entirely a business transaction on both sides. They ended up being quite good friends, but it doesn't look like they had the intimacy of a husband and wife kind of love. She would run his household, manage his accounts, and care for his almost adult-aged children and their grandchildren, his grandchildren. Mm -hmm. She would also bring immense wealth, further power in land holdings, and prestige of being a royal descendant as well as himself. He would bring her protection under the Yorkist regime. This was critical for her. That is why she did it. Also bring protection to her son under the Yorkist regime. Mm, yep. This was a time when noblemen were expected to have mistresses, but I found no mention anywhere that Thomas did. They even retained separate houses in London and did not stay together when both were at court. So it was really a business transaction. Yeah, very much so. Gosh. We are now... 1482. He married Margaret. He invaded Scotland as a lieutenant to Richard, the Duke of Gloucester. Apparently, they were mending their bridges. They managed to gain land and booty from the invasion, but did not meet in the kings of, King of Scots in battle as they hoped. It was apparently quite disappointing. He now has more wealth and land than almost everyone else, save the king and Richard. Everything is going fantastic. Thomas has all he could ask for, including more land and honor in battle on a single side. He doesn't have to do the balancing game anymore. And then things go sideways. Edward IV died the next year in 1483. That's Mm. where we're going to end today. Oh, I had no idea he was this powerful. Neither did I. (laughs) And I was thinking when I was sort of putting down my bullet notes and figuring out what we're going to talk about. Do we really want to put all this in? But to know how powerful he actually was is important. Mm. No mm. wonder Henry VII had to keep him on side, too. Yes. Well, I, I think they all found that, didn't they? We can't, we can't let this man go to the other side yeah. or become a loose cannon, I suppose. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So that is the end of this episode. Looks like it's going to be three. (laughs) (laughs) I might splice a bunch together to make it three, or I'll keep it at two. I don't know. It depends. I wasn't expecting our conversation about them or discussions to go so long. So, (laughs) yeah, we still have at least another same length to get through. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. Because his intriguing doesn't stop. Mm. Yeah. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you next time. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Shush. Hey, I get it. You're bored. That we're busy. I will play with you later, okay? <laughs> He's so loud. 